Welcome to Tabletop. My name is Nick, and I think that fudging dice rolls is totally okay. Hey, it's me, Franco, and rolling for initiative sucks. I'm Daniel, and I think you should modify your first level characters as much as you want. And I'm Shade, and if your TTRPG hasn't evolved into a LARP, you've done it wrong. And we all host Tabletop, a TTRPG podcast about all things games and storytelling. And sometimes we have game designers, professional researchers, and even the occasional owlbear. If this interests you, listen to Tabletop every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Tabletop is a proud member of the Helios Network. Previously on Negative Modifier. Just kidding. This episode is a deep dive into the Cthulhu mythos and Delta Green lore utilized and referenced within the JSL files. Its format is more of a general discussion of themes, imagery, references, and lore and nothing like a more typical Negative Modifier episode. This episode assumes that you have already listened to all of the JSL files, and if you have not, we highly recommend you go back and listen to it. You won't be disappointed. Obviously given the nature of this episode, consider this your spoiler warning. In this episode of Negative Modifier, we'll be playing the game Delta Green. Delta Green by design tackles various mature themes that may be uncomfortable or triggering for listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to our first negative modifier lore long lore deep dive. I'm still working on the name for example. I'm going to call these moving forward. But yes, I am Charlie, uh, your game master handler. Handler it's Delta Green, so we're going to go with handler for the time being through all of JSL files. Uh, AKA Miss Pine, AKA Charles Zayanthus. That's the wrong accent for him. But yes, uh, so I am I am joined by the host of the Dungeon Designers Guild podcast. Uh, Stephen Leviathan, or as you all that have listened to this podcast up to this point will know him as, Agent Yoten. And we're going to kind of spend some time walking through the lore of JSL files. Now, before you kind of, is this going to be me revealing all of the, oh, here are the points in time where JSL could have changed their fates or whatever? I'm not doing that. The events of JSL are canon. They always have been canon. That's how it was supposed to turn out. I'm not one of those dungeon masters or game masters or whatever that likes to nitpick and be like, oh, here's where you could have done stuff wrong. JSL Files is fantastic as it stands. I would change nothing about it exactly the story I wanted to tell at the end of it. Everyone on it was great. There's no second guessing those chances. But what there is, is the inherent problem with Delta Green. And that it that is its lore. So, uh, Stephen, you're familiar with Call of Cthulhu, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the game, the story, both. Which are you looking for? Uh, no, yeah, that's that. That's the correct answer. Not there is a correct answer in this case. So, do you feel like you learned anything about the lore of Delta Green? Really, having now played through an entire campaign of Delta Green. Well, that's a tough one because we talked about the lore of Delta Green beforehand. Yeah. So, I'm trying to think back if there was anything. I know in the first, I, I believe in the first episode, my character makes reference to something that you had told us the week before when we were character building, yeah, which was the, the fall of Delta green event. And I realized when I went back and listened to the episode that there's maybe no reason my character, or it, it's, it's odd for a brand new character to know something like that. Yeah. And, and like in the worst, in the most Delta green way possible, there's actually no good way to onboard the lore of Delta green while playing Delta green without doing weird info drops. Like, and, 
The one time I did it, it felt awkward, which was at the start of New Thule, where I basically kind of explained the Karotechia. Karotechia? Karotechia? How do you pronounce it? It's very German. That's about as far as you can go the lore drop without kind of getting into some real weird stuff in Delta Green land, because Delta Green at this point is now canonically three and a half, two and a half, two, depending on how you count games at this point, and all of them are considered canonical at this point, and they are full of contradictions in the fact that, like, the game designers basically say, like, yeah, no, all of it's canon, unless it's not, because it's Delta Green. I would say that Karotechia yeah. of Deutsch, but um, Car- no, Car- it would be a Karo. Karotechia? Yeah. Karotechia. Yeah, and that is the biggest problem with Delta Green as a whole, where to talk about Delta Green is to ruin the playing experience of Delta Green because half the fun is the mystery and that you don't know what's going on until it happens to you. And even then, it doesn't actually matter. And part of what separates Delta Green, I think most importantly from Call of Cthulhu and other kind of usages of the Cthulhu mythos is its attitude towards it. And uh, have you played Call of Cthulhu before? I have not, actually. Delta Green is the first game I've played that uses anything resembling the Chaosium BRP system. So I've never touched Call of Cthulhu, I've never touched RuneQuest, um, Superworld, any of that. Yeah. So and like, I think the biggest difference that a lot of people don't get is that Cthulhu, despite being about your characters going insane and investigations and incredibly bleak time periods of human history, whether it be depression, kind of some of the Victorian stuff, like it's it's weird time periods full of racism and other stuff going on that's kind of, it's part of that game's mythos and kind of that game's setting. It's an upbeat game. It's got hope. Delta Green is bleak in a way. Very few tabletop RPGs A, pull off, and B, can afford to be. And it's part of the fact that like, from the onset of the game, like the game is very heavy on stress, and when you're reading through both kind of the full player book and the handler guide stuff for it, that it's not a game about preventing the apocalypse. It's the apocalypse is happening. You're essentially kind of putting all your weight into holding the ticker from getting to midnight completely. Like it's 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 about running out the clock for as long as possible, not stopping the clock from starting, kind of thing. And I guess that's our transition into JSL files. So what you may have noticed is that there was an overarching theme to all of JSL files. Do you want to take a guess at what it might have been? Um, I guess to an overarching theme. Well, we had, huh? Okay, so we had the last things last. We had, I mean, like, there's Nazis. I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. Hold on. There was, there, I mean, there was definitely at least one thread of white supremacy, but that didn't carry into the final chapter. Truly, is it? Well, there's some. Uh, there's. Manipulation of dead, I guess. There's a few things that were happening because you had the uh, you had the the undead wife in the tank, and then you also had um, uh, hair. I'm blanking on his name. Felder. Felder. There we go. Sorry, uh, we can cut that. Hair Felder, and he was some sort of mummy, but I don't see an undead in the final episode exactly. Yeah, so you're actually going way too specific. The overarching theme was underprepared. Interesting. 
Yeah, so, and one of the kind of major themes of Delta Green as a whole, and I tried to kind of use JSL as an introduction to this whole concept, is even knowing everything about a scenario, your characters are underprepared. Like, they could show up with a tank and all the nuclear missiles they want, and if it's the right threat, none of it matters at the end of the day. I think I was kind of prone to saying in between sessions, like, even the most broken character possible in Delta Green is still balanced because there is no such thing as balanced in Delta Green. Like, there's no way to make a character that's a bullet sponge. Like, there's just stuff in the game that does raw. It's like, okay, it does 40 damage automatically. How's that fair? It's the size of a pickup truck. What is it supposed to do? Right. Yeah, I see, I see that, I guess. Um, yeah. Underprepared. See, I guess I any situation where we're underprepared, I may have perceived as our own ineptitude as new players. I don't know. Uh, no, and then that... It, so, and that was kind of me actually playing up that aspect of it. Like, Delta Green, I think, is in a lot of ways most fun when either played with people that have no concept of Delta Green because you get you're playing a horror game, but also you're not kind of used to the horror game that Delta Green is. It's a very, it's, it goes from, hey, it's an investigation to guns loud at the drop of a hat, which is part of why I actually like it over similar games. Like, I play a lot of Delta Green. I'm actually, at the end of the day, not a huge Call of Cthulhu fan. I respect it for what it is. And, the right story fits it, but I'd much rather play Delta Green set in a wrong time period than actually ever play Call of Cthulhu comparatively for that specific reason. Is the kind of it goes from being very plotting and methodical to hey, it's a fight sequence now. And given my uh, predilections, I would definitely like to play Call of Cthulhu if for no other reason than to make the comparison between the yeah. two. But um, when I said before I hadn't touched anything BRP, it wasn't from. A desire not to is from a desire. Yeah, I know. It's it's, it's just having the had the opportunity, so it's the first chance I've had. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and not 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 knocking Call of Cthulhu, just a personal preference. I guess in my own leanings at the end of the day. So let's let's walk through the four parts of the campaign. So we, as you started off with, we have Last Things Last, which is our only from the existing written narratives that are provided by Arc Dream Publishing for Delta Green. It's as much as it's kind of the I wanted it for the podcast to both be our first story because it's the, it for me is the quintessential, even if it's not the best introduction to Delta Green, I think it's the, it's the story almost every Delta Green fan has played at least five times. Cause it's the game, it's very easy to run. The resources are out there for it. Like all the handouts are pretty easy to modify for it. And from a new player perspective, it's a fantastic crash course in, okay, here's kind of what this game is about. Here's all the various kind of aspects that make up all the different parts of this game. And from a handler standpoint, there's several points that you can seed stuff in to make things more interesting. And the obvious place for that is the infamous uh, Clyde Bauman's locker in his cabin. Right. I was going to say, I think, yeah, that seemed the obvious place to stash whatever we need to find to lead to the next part of the campaign. Yeah. And that's where I made the most changes and kind of the, you can point to almost the exact moment in that thing where it goes from, okay, this is kind of story as written to slight changes to, okay, here we are in the negative modifier version of Last Things Last. And yeah, it, the nature of Marlene and all that stuff wasn't inherently changed for the story that I was telling. It was just kind of, okay, Marlene's got to go do her own thing now kind of thing. I, I thought the Pursuit of the Woods was a very cool thing for a lot of first time through Last Things Last, Marlene escapes because it's Marlene. She's not that dangerous, but she is powerful in a weird way. 
And yeah, I, I think kind of like the plan was always for her to kind of come back in some way, given that whole repossessing thing she could do. And the fact we got to do the whole body swap thing, not once, but twice with her. I thought it was actually a lot of fun and kind of really drove home this idea of, okay, yeah, this is completely alien and things are going to get weird. Uh, but so I got, we touched on the lockbox some. Did you know what the most important thing in the lockbox was? I'm trying to remember what exactly was in the lockbox. I remember there was a picture of them capturing Nazis yep. in Nam. Yep. Is that it? Or I mean, there's a lighter. There's the lighter. There's And so the most important thing in the grand scheme of the campaign was, was a hard drive. And it was talked about and kind of never got brought up again because it's just a hard drive. It has the words Mr. Sunshine. And this is my first kind of big lore dump of Delta Green. So what Delta Green does a really good job of is working with the kind of the Hastor, King and Yellow, Carcosa mythos, which we'll get to in larger details later. But there's a modern reimagining of that set of characters called Mist- called uh, Captain Sunshine, who's essentially a cyber troll version of the King in Yellow. And that was kind of your indication that, like, yes, this was a Karatekia story at its core, but it was also an ironically a King in Yellow story from the onset as well. Which I am familiar with the King in Yellow, and I should have picked up on that sooner. I think during the final session I picked up on, or one of the final sessions I picked up on, oh, there's a play and whatnot. We, we'll get into that later, as you said. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. And part of the framing of it was that, like, part of the reason it's four scenarios is it's the four acts of a play and stuff like that, and they all have their own kind of siloing off, and the big finale is our trip to Krakosa at the end, which, yeah. But yeah, so. Let's talk about the Karatekia. The Karatekia is a holdover from the older days of Delta Green. By that, I mean kind of the Cthulhu using of the kind of the Cthulhu expansion books that the Delta Green averse is based off. Those who don't know what this is, it's using the kind of, I think it's the 7th or 8th edition of Call of Cthulhu. There's a whole set of books that are the Delta Green books that are the original canon for this that start the reimagining of what the Cthulhu missiles might be in a more modern context. And basically it's this time frame from kind of World War II up to the end of the 90s, but mostly in the 90s. And they're very much of that time. There's some good books in there too. It kind of starts developing the history. It dives very much kind of deeply into the whole idea of during that time span, the Delta Green organization is outlaws. Like they're completely illegal. What they're doing is not sanctioned in any way, shape or form. That kind of changes in the modern sending, but they still maintain that outlaw status. But so the Karateki are very much of this time, and they are the survivors of the kind of occult SS from the Nazi era, and that's where it gets weird, because well, I, I, I love the Karateki. They are... Killing Nazis is fun in RPGs. I'm just gonna throw that one out there. Like, killing magical Nazis is ridiculous. And the Karatekia themselves are this bizarre group where it's three liches that run the organization. All of them are some version of insane, and for whatever reason, Nilethrotep, Nilarlethrotep, has taken a weirdly specific vested interest in them and has taken to just messing with them. And that was three liches, you said? Yeah, and they never showed up in our campaign, but the whole idea is that they are basic. So Thule Society, which is what um, Felder was part of, that's a real thing. You can go research the Thule Society. It's a real unfortunate part of German history. It le- its kind of origins lead directly into the whole kind of 
SS occultism. Like it's basically a cut and paste of one thing to another that a bunch of the members carried over and it goes back a ways. And it's not quite as horrible as the Nazi version of it was, but also it's kind of worse because you can see it. I'm not saying it's the origin for some of the stuff, but like they were literally blood magicians. Like it's an entire insane order of real, real worlds. Again, you can go research them. There are books on them. You can go check out libraries and stuff of German racist blood magic users. Didn't work because magic's not real, but very real. And I always found them fascinating. And the whole kind of Karatekia linked to them. Like in a lot of weird ways, they made the Nazi stuff look sane. All right. Yeah. So Felders of that time span or of kind of, of that group and obviously Karotechnik gets wiped off as part of kind of 90s Delta Green. They have this Delta Green has a weird habit of like predicting big events that may or may not happen before they happen. So the kind of canonical so in Delta Green the Karotechnik is canonically ended and ironically the creators of Delta Green have on record said Maybe we were a tad premature in doing that, but also the ending of the Karotechia is basically straight up 9-11 in some ways, written a couple of years before 9-11 even happened, which in its own way is just absolutely bizarre. And it's one of the few times in Delta Green lore where it and the various other kind of similar organizations, the Russian one, the British one, and a couple others, finally get along and wipe out the Karotechia, who... So I think the reference at one point was actually made during the episode about Brazil. It is where they primarily are. And I like I, the kind of fall of Delta Green stuff you referenced. That is in actually the Vietnam era and specifically in Vietnam. The kind of short of that story is that at that point in time, Delta Green is a sanctioned military entity, kind of. They're part of a um, branch of the Navy that has a weird obsession with deep ones from kind of the original Insmith incident from the Call of Cthulhu writings and stuff like that. And that's where the kind of that's where the lore splits in a lot of ways. You have the Delta Greeniverse where following the Insmith story from HP Lovecraft, you have the US government have a couple people get real into killing deep ones and oh by the way, Area 51 is full of deep ones that were taken from Insmith, FYI. And they're kind of doing anti-unnatural stuff up into Vietnam and a variety of things happen, and maybe Cambodia gets invaded illegally to go after some especially kind of dangerous, unnatural stuff, and that blows up, and the U.S. government undoes Delta Green, what parts of the U.S. government know about it. Uh, there's some Majestic 12 stuff in there that if we ever do Majestic 12 stuff on the podcast, I'll go into in a similar podcast like this, but it's too much to go into right now. Uh, except for the fact that Majestic 12, again, is real. You can Google it. They were the people kind of in charge of alien stuff up through, I guess, the 90s, 2000s, kind of. Again, real world from kind of all the Roswell stuff up through that time spent. They're a real thing you can look up, and they're weird. There's actually a show called Project Blue Book that, not the best show out there, but if you want to get a sense of just how almost comically evil Majestic 12 was in real life, go check out that show. There were some like almost mustache twirling supervillains at certain points. What they were up to. Their their whole campaign was basically sending people out to disprove instances of UFO sightings and stuff like that. Which may or may not be true. I'm not gonna judge that one, but like again, it's a very 
weird thing that Delta Green chooses to highlight in all the right ways. Oh, and by the way, Greys are aren't aliens; they're Mego puppets, which is a whole again. We'll get into that some other lore topics some other time. A lot of Delta Green stuff to go through. I, if you're curious about this, the Handler's Guide is a hell of a trippy read to go through, especially if you like kind of weird mythos stuff like this. But back to our campaign. So yeah, you have Clive Bauman, who you correctly picked up on, was this relic of the sanctioned era, but also did some outlaw stuff, which just because they're not sanctioned doesn't mean that Delta Green agents stopped doing their thing. I guess kind of any questions you got about that time span, I could go into greater detail on it, but I want to kind of keep it somewhat focused. About the Vietnam era, fall of yeah. Delta Green stuff? Yeah. Uh, questions that I have. Um, yeah, I mean, we found the photograph that showed Clyde Bowman. I assume yeah. Clyde Bowman. Uh, that was Clyde. Yep, that was definitely Clyde. That was. Yeah, you guys nailed that one. What were the Nazis doing in Cambodia? What are the Nazis doing in Brazil in the sixties? They're they're being Karotechia. They're kind of it's the Karotechia's whole thing is they're a worldwide network that's using magic and super science and the fact that. So I guess kind of go into that detail a little bit more. So the Karatekia basically breaks down into you have one guy who, and I'm paraphrasing some, basically can't leave a freezer because they'll start decaying too quickly. One guy who goes off to be like the badass military, the most badass um, mercenary of all time. And then one guy who's like, I'm going to kind of keep up the whole SS thing going on. And they're working in tandem, but they're also kind of off doing their own things. And our, uh, our, our mercenary guy goes all the hell over the place. And in kind of the name of doing weird, what's the right phrase? Uh, Karatechia magic stuff. I guess I kind of have to rewind back to World War II, all of Cthulhu stuff through the eyes of Delta Green. Like that, this whole, and maybe we're on a campaign during this time because it's a fascinating time span for Delta Green stuff. Uh, both pulling from real world and what the writers chose to kind of extrapolate into the weirder kind of Delta Green mythos of this stuff. The Nazis were doing in the real world lots of crazy occult stuff that in some cases the writers were like, we're not touching that, that's just human atrocities, that's not us, that's not not ours to touch. But also like, if you had them talking to the Deep Ones because they were weirdly into occultism, that's totally a thing they would be doing, and they'd probably be doing heinous stuff because Deep Ones want sacrifices and breeding people. And that's kind of where the Karatechia comes from. So they have that old kind of ongoing relationship with initially the Deep Ones, then Nyarlathrotep, that carries them through and makes them kind of mysterious and weird. Oh, and that's I, I, kind of part of the thing to remember about this. I didn't mention this yet. Um, Nyarlathotep is showing up to them as the ghost of Hitler. I'm not making that up. That's how he's showing up to the kind of leaders of the Karotechia. Okay. Yeah, that's that's I'm paraphrasing some, but that's kind of Karotechia lore. It's it's both the goofiest and like one of the more kind of compellingly serious things of all of Delta Green lore, especially from that time period, and so. One of the big differences between old Delta Green and kind of modern Delta Green is pre kind of the modern Delta Green stuff. It was very much about organizations. It was um, big cults, uh, big kind of conspiracy stuff, all that kind of. Carotech is very of that kind of writing's time span. 
the modern stuff is a lot more isolated. The whole idea being it's not about big machinations anymore. There's too much stuff going on in the world for kind of the big power players to be the ones necessarily behind all these big things. And also just kind of given how complicated the world is now, it would get out. But on kind of a more local scale, a kind of a sadder, more desperate scale, kind of a a thing that more conceivably for federal agents could wander into and actually investigate and not like unravel and have to country hop for nine months kind of thing. That's what modern Delta Green's about. And it makes sense they ended the Karatekia before they got to the modern stuff because they'd be kind of a weird thing to force in there. But I also unironically love the kind of ridiculousness of the Karatekia and what they kind of present in the Delta Green. So I brought them back in kind of a form through um, our alligator cult and then later into our Felder character. And the alligator cult is like, there's a lot of conversation in the Delta Green community, but how would you do the Karotechia now? And my answer has always been, you have all of these white supremacist compounds out there. That's what the Karotechia was doing canonically in the 90s. They'd just be doing it now, but worse. Huh. Run that last part past me again. The Karatechia in the 90s? I missed, I missed a sentence in there. Oh, sorry, yeah. So the the Karatechia, like, as written, were going around in Delta Green lore, and this is, again, like, this rickets kind of a shaky bridge. You can blame in Delta Green, at least, not completely, but, like, a factor in the rise of modern white supremacy in the Delta Green universe is because of the Karatechia. They realize, like, they can't raid, they can't wage this kind of war of a Fourth Reich the way they used to, so it's kind of this guerrilla approach it's like, what if we slowly kind of plant sleeper cells across the entirety of the US that, like, when unified could rise up and do something and, yeah, again, like certain modern events are weirdly indicative of the ending, or the kind of the final scenario written for the Karatekia by the Delta Green writers which, even they've been like, wow, we called that in a weird way Okay, and we may want to cut this but is, is, uh you know, destabilizing and delegitimizing uh, democracy in this country part of that, or? Yeah, and it's, it's on there, and this is one of those things where kind of this is written back in the 80s and 90s, back when more of the, uh, that some of that stuff seemed outlandish to write at the time, so that's why they kind of wrote it, like, uh, wrote it more accurately. So, it's less focused on that, and more kind of just like an, uh, uh, yeah, you could totally modernize what they were writing at the time to match up with those events kind of thing. Like that's absolutely kind of a Karotechia thing to go down. And I guess like this is a one of my favorite kind of bizarre Delta Green facts to bring up is it's in one of the, it's in kind of some interviews they've done. I can't remember who was which of the creators was talking about this, but some of the Delta Green staff successfully sued QAnon at one point and won on copyright infringement. Can you, you've mentioned that before, can you go into any detail, do you have any examples of what QAnon was claiming that is from Delta Green? I meant to look this up, actually, we did this, and it's, it's some of the crazier stuff, like JFK rising from the ocean, undead and stuff like that, like, it's, it's the same kind of stuff where, like, there is a um, Julia Child's biography out there that claims she was a member of Delta Green, it's just kind of some references to... I think it's Karotechia stuff too, which is kind of even the crazier stuff to think about. Like it's it's their majestic pulse. And I, I I should have looked this all up, and maybe I will in a kind of later date for this thing. I wasn't expecting to go down this path as part of this, but oh, wait, well, now that we're on the path, I have some questions. 
So sure. the they were claiming that JFK rose from the ocean undead. That is uh, uh, JFK Jr., I think. And that's a QAnon thing, not Delta Green. I, I, I very fortunate to know okay. far more about Delta Green than that stuff. Yes, forgive me. I've never done much research on QAnon either. So when you initially told me that they had been sued, I was taken aback because I didn't think that they were a real organization. I thought they were something the internet made up, but they are an internet organization, and they were claiming that JFK Jr. is undead. Yeah, that, that whole surge thing they were going to do, like that was supposed to coincide. Uh, that was supposed to kind of like overlap with certain world leaders that were allegedly dead, kind of coming back from the dead and uh, revealing themselves to not be dead and stuff like that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to go. We shouldn't go down this far, too far because it legitimizes okay. a bunch of real shitty theories that are wrong. And when Delta Green is sitting there going, um, "I'm sorry, you're infringing on our stuff. You know you're off the deep end." I just I I thought perhaps they would have tried to co-opt some of the more plausible Delta Green <laughs> conspiracies, but I, I will leave it at this: the reality, like, the danger of Delta Green, and kind of as we played, it seems outlandish as it's written. A lot of it is because of the creators' backgrounds behind it, very plausible and very written, like it's real. I remember, like part of the staff for this were in trained to be lawyers. They were members of the State Department. So they all have, like, part of what makes Delta Green tick at kind of, like, a mechanics level is the fact that the writers, creators behind it, have a very intimate knowledge of maybe not the mythos part of it because the mythos is made up, but the, the federal agent part of it, the actual player kind of, like, some of the weird bullshit they go through, some of the weirder mechanics of the bureaucracy system. That's something they're very intimately familiar with, like, to the point where, again, I'm, I'm not sure which creator it was, they got called into, I'm paraphrasing the story against them here, they basically got in trouble at work where it's like, we want to ask you, this, we want to ask stories about what this Delta Green thing is. And are you an actual member of it? <laughs> okay. When you said that Julia Childs had an, uh, an autobiography. It's an incredibly, terribly researched when it's a bad biography, but it, you can buy it off Amazon. I think last time I checked, it was like four or five bucks. But it um, references her time as a Delta Green operative following World War II. Okay, so did Delta Green exist as a concept no. before this game? No, it's completely okay. made up. There's no, there's no such thing as Delta Green. That's how prolific, I guess, and kind of accurate some of the writing for it is. I, I don't even actually know where the Delta Green Julia Child joke comes from, except that it's in this book that you can go buy, and it's a real book, and it's Again, it's a poorly researched, badly done kind of autobiography someone wrote at one point. Like, I'm I'm sorry you have a Delta Green reference in an autobiography, like, unless she was way into that Cthulhu mythos, that's not where that thing belongs. But yes, I, yeah, I suspect in some canonical thing in Delta Green versus references Julia Child being an operative because she's the exact type of person Delta Green from kind of the World War II to Vietnam era would absolutely recruit because they were kind of CIA, but we're going to go hunt some monsters. Yeah. I, if you go back to kind of the fall of Delta Green books, which are the Vietnam and kind of earlier gumshoe setting for Delta Greeniverse, they are much better funded, much more legitimate, and both less and more terrifying simultaneously. They are pulling just straight raids and like wiping villages out off the map and stuff like that because A, they can get away with it because it's a different geopolitical time and B, 
because the mythos threats are that much more at that point in time. Like the monsters are bigger, they're more around, and it's not like one kid in a basement summoning a hound. It's entire villages kind of in worship of a polyp or a um something worse at that point. Like it's people opening portals when they shouldn't. It, it's it's the Cthulhu scale where Cthulhu's about kind of we're gonna stop the end of the world. Delta Green's about we're gonna kill the monster that that slipped through because it is the end of the world. Like it's it's that transitional period where it goes from we're stopping the end from we're maintaining the end to keep going as long as possible. And I think it's it's not my favorite version of Delta Green. It's Gumshoe, which either you like or do you don't. I'm not the biggest fan of it. At the end of the day, I think it does some things well and some things could do better. But from a setting standpoint, from a lore standpoint, it's very cool. And I, if you're into this whole Delta Green stuff, I recommend checking out the Handler's Guide from a reading perspective. It is a trip to go through the official history of the Delta Green program. It is extensive and detailed. It would take like a thousand podcast episodes to go through, so we're not going to cover it here. But yeah, it's a it's of a very specific time. That, that whole kind of era is a specific time in Delta Green that I think is both important to understanding some of the lore parts of it, but completely unimportant to playing it in the modern setting, if that makes any sense. Because it's happened and it's over. And to clarify, when you say that the Fall of Delta Green is gumshoe. What you mean is that it's built on a different system than Yeah, it is the gumshoe um system, which if you're not familiar with that, it's more of a uh, it's an investigatory system. There are kind of more combat oriented versions of it. Uh, I'd liken it kind of to um Savage Worlds some where it's more universal. If you understand gumshoe for one game setting you kind of understand gumshoe for all of the gumshoe settings. Like, all of them have slight variations on the rules, but if you understand it in one, the rule variants are pretty minor, and also you can just kind of pull everything from other gumshoe systems into your preferred gumshoe system, and it's pretty much already ready for you. Yeah, it's some of them, like, um, Knight's Black Agents is probably the gumshoe system I like the most, and that's also one of the more kind of action-focused aspects of that uh, Trail of Cthulhu, I believe, is gumshoe. Yeah, unsurprisingly, yeah. a ton of mythos stuff is gumshoe in one way or another. And I, if I had to guess, I, I've, I've not researched this, but my guess is that Trail of Cthulhu predates the Delta Green, the Fall of Delta Green gumshoe. It's interesting to me from a design standpoint that they chose to create this, um, to set the game in a separate time period and put it in a different system at the same time. When I don't know, I that that wouldn't be my instinct. Is there any particular reason that you're aware of that they chose to do that? Does it lend itself to that era in some way that's that I'm missing? Yeah, I, I think it's it has to do with kind of just how different that setting for Delta Green is. So that era of Delta Green is very specifically either you are that time span is still kind of dominated by the fact that Delta Green is still a legitimate part of the U.S. It is, it has resources, it has helicopters, it has guns, it has money, and I guess I have to take a step back to our full-on lore conversation. Did I ever tell you what the name Delta Green comes from? I assumed that, well, Delta, I mean, it's not Omega, but it is kind of the end, it's the spilling out. And green is, I mean, I, I perceive Cthulhu as green. So I just kind of, my somewhere in there, I just went, oh yeah, that makes sense. 
So the name in kind of canon references the fact that if you were a federal, typically military member that witnessed some unnatural and proved that you could handle yourself and or it and didn't just kind of go bonkers at the immediate sight of it, your file got stamped with a green triangle. The Delta Green logo, if you will. And that's where the name comes from. It was, and it was a security clearance. And that security clearance was end all be all. You had, uh, you had higher clearance at that point than I think the U.S. president technically in lore. Like it is, you are the top of the food chain. You can request anything. No questions asked. People can't ask you shit at that point. Levels of security clearance. And, the fall of Delta Green is the story of that finally kind of that, that hubris, that kind of attitude coming back and just biting the organization in the ass and it all falling apart spectacularly as it's supposed to, I guess. Like the, the story of Delta Green is very much reminiscent of the playing of Delta Green, which is that spiral down, like it will end in tears kind of thing. Like the Delta Green as the power player eventually spirals down through insanity and hubris to falling apart and going into the dark ages of essentially every Delta Green agent is the Punisher, and then in the modern era, kind of the post-9-11 era, the 2000, I think it's 8, printing on, then you have modern Delta Green, where it's, you still have the outlaws, and maybe the outlaws, right, but then you also have the program, where the program is a conspiracy inside the U.S. government to pick up the slack of, hey, there's some monsters about, we have to handle this stuff because it needs handling. And there's no right answer in that case. There's pluses and minuses to being both um, outlaw and program, as I think JCL learned kind of both the hard way and the good way simultaneously. On one hand, you were free of Miss Pine. On the other hand, you had no resources. <laughs> Sorry, I'm mute. Yeah. I mean, I was the only one that. I don't that uh, didn't really have a problem with I mean she was she was a bit of a problem. I mean she was difficult to deal with but I perceived her as ultimately having our interest we were more useful to her alive than we were yeah you know no and and, and that's kind of it's the going off the theme of our kind of whole season the fact that kind of she you all picked up on the fact that she wasn't exactly forthcoming with information and I guess uh, listeners look forward to the fact that in our next season Miss Pine's a tad more helpful because <laughs> we're doing some different stuff and we're dealing with veteran agents at that point. It's it's a different tone. It's a different story we're telling at that point. So, yeah, and I, I think kind of that's actually a great transition point to moving on to kind of our, our our big mythos topics at that point. We have throughout the run of this, we had Nyra Lethrotep show up. We had some serious kind of Hastor mythos stuff. We had some Cthulhu mythos stuff and touched on it i'm actually surprised by this i always assumed the green color from delta green came from the fact that um obviously hastor is or hastor is very much associated with the color yellow because king yellow and all that stuff and in my mind i always think of cthulhu as blue and this is this kind of my head canon at this point delta green exists where you have the kind of very tangible traditional unnatural horror of the Cthulhu mythos, the kind of the monsters, the tentacles, the things that are definable as horrific, and the Haster mythos, which is much more psychedelic's the wrong phrase, but I can't think of a better phrase for it either. Like it's it's still got that same kind of aesthetic of the Cthulhu mythos, but it's much more cerebral. It's about fear, it's about decay, it's about entropy, it's about an inevitability kind of thing. And 
Deltarune exists at kind of the unhappy middle of where those two things collide. Uh, are you familiar with our Lord Haster at all? He wrote King in Yellow? Sort of. So, Caster uh, is Cthulhu's brother. Oh, sorry. I No, I, I'm not familiar with him at all then, sir. I was jumping to conclusion. No, you're not wrong, and that's kind of where the... And so, uh, yes, yeah, so like, like I said, uh, Hastor is... Um, Hastor, Hastor. He is Cthulhu's brother, and where Cthulhu is a very defined, unnatural threat, Hastor is... A, not by H.P. Lovecraft's invention, which I think makes him all the more interesting, technically predates Cthulhu in the weirdest way possible. Like, the name Haster is out there because the King in Yellow exists before H.P. Lovecraft's work started, and it got incorporated because H.P. Lovecraft was a huge fanboy of the King in Yellow stuff, so, of course, Haster came along for the ride. And where... Elder gods and outer gods and all that kind of stuff, the various kind of deities of the Cthulhu mythos, or we think of the Cthulhu mythos, have their own goals, or at least intentions. Hasters ranges from I want to murder Cthulhu really badly, to my goal is to stop everyone else's goals from happening, which isn't a good thing, because it just means entropy and nothing changes, and that's kind of Haster's whole thing. I he is the polar opposite of every single god in the mythos, in my opinion, because th- there's no way of knowing him. He is both... He's my second favorite. My favorite of those things is um, Yasathoth, which we had our brief interaction with when uh, Agent Yoten tried to banish, or successfully banish, the um, thing that was Marlene. And I, I mostly love Yasathoth because he just hates his followers. He just wants to be left alone constantly, which is the only human characteristic he has. And I, I started with the whole Haster thing because you then have Nyarlathotep, which I know I pronounced Nyarlathotep in the podcast, and I physically could not pronounce that name correctly. I could not get my brain to wrap around the more accurate pronunciation of that till like eight minutes after we were done recording the episodes where we talked about him first. I'm like, well, shit, we're stuck with Nyarlathotep now. Can't change it up, but yeah, it's Nihilar Lethrotep or the Black Pharaoh or however you want to pronounce it. He's the he's the Loki of the mythos, being that he's also kind of the only one that has human interests is maybe the way of thinking of it. Like he is hands down the most human of the weird kind of eldritch things in the mythos, which is why I find him fascinating and also kind of like a he can be a tad MacGuffin-y because when you kind of you want something to kind of big and bad happen, you kind of shove him into any situation because his motivations are known to only himself, and he's kind of got that Warhammer 40k all as planned vibe to him, where he has plans upon plans that violate said plans and reinforce said plans and plans on certain plans failing. So make of that what you will. Add- if you've never looked up a picture of what Nyarlathotep in theory looks like, he is one of the truly strangest, I think, interpretations of anything in the mythos, too. He's just kind of this mass of, I don't want to say tentacles, that's what everything is in this thing, but it's more kind of one tentacle with a mouth and hands, which we didn't touch on that version of him because we were doing the Black Pharaoh variant, but... Yeah, even in his kind of, quote, true god form, he is the most human of the other things. And he shows up because he's attached to Felder, who is kind of Karotechi adjacent, and of course he's going to mess with his favorite toys. 
Right, and he showed up in the. Um, I I would not have. I, I'm familiar with Nyarlathotep, and I just assumed that you were saying it right, and that I'd been saying it wrong this whole time. Um, who knows? Uh, technically, we all say Cthulhu wrong. The, okay, so what what's your take on Cthulhu? Because I've heard four different ways. Um, I pronounce it Cthulhu because that's how I've always pronounced it. But I have watched the videos that explain how you pronounce Cthulhu, and it's more like. It's it's closer to Cthulhu. I physically can't pronounce it correctly, and I think that in in the most elder uh, elder god way possible, not to be able to pronounce this correct. Like the, the fact that we have no definitive pronunciation for any of these things, and the fact that I know it's pronouncing it wrong, and you're like, oh, he's pronouncing it right. That's the most Nyarlathotep thing ever. Ah, okay, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I w- I had a friend that insisted it was Cthulhu. Um, I've heard a few different yeah. versions, so Cthulhu. But yeah, the guys, you know, humans should not be able to pronounce the languages of weird squid-faced well, god monsters. Yeah, and there's even an argument to be made that they're not even speaking a language. I, again, like, I've, part of what I love about the Cthulhu, the Hastor, just kind of the general mythos in general, is that it, as much as it is about kind of these unnatural god beings that, like, do have some impact on humanity, kind of how you think about it. They're not really gods. They're just interp they're just kind of the human branding of a concept. Like um Asathoth, the, the the big god amongst them all, the the idiot sultan or the demon sultan, whatever you want to call him, who kind of lies at the center of all this mythos that uh, Really make you feel self feel nihilistic when it comes to Delta Green topics. According to lore, everything we've done in JSL and we ever will do in Delta Green and all of its existence, you listen to this podcast, are all just the dream of Asathoth. And if he ever wakes up, we just kind of pop out of existence. So everything, like Nyarlathotep, uh, Cthulhu, all that stuff, like some of them are powerful enough they'd escape that kind of weird existence, but also it's not clear if they even actually exist any more than they do or don't kind of thing in mythos. So yeah, that's a whole thing. And as much as he's defined with very human understanding, Oh, he's got a mouth and a billion eyes and a definable body. He's also just the black hole at the center of the universe and or nuclear explosion. Like he is simultaneously a thing that is best defined as a constantly splitting giant atom as he is a black hole, as he is kind of this giant, infinitely eye demon thing that's asleep for the time being. And all the gods are kind of like that. Um, uh, Shignigaroth, we never got into because she just didn't fit in the stuff we were doing, is the is the, the black goat of the forest, but also she's just the force of change and creation and kind of a basic instinct all living things have to reproduce and multiply. She's just into doing it way faster than maybe is safe for other species. Which, yeah, we kind of had that Darwinism applied to a concept and then made that into a god. That's the correct interpretation of that. And her whole kind of slew of monsters that represent her are all types of messed up. And it's weird, like the fertility god of the Cthulhu mythos is arguably, in my mind, the scariest of all of them just because there's a weird like sadomasochism overlap with all of her stuff that is just fantastically uncomfortable to play through. If you're looking for a good example of that, the um, 
called Lover in the Ice. It's one of the written scenarios from Arc Dream for Delta Green. It's I'm not sure if it's the most famous Delta Green scenario, but it's also one. Of, it's definitely one of the most famous fan favorite, I guess, because it's it's a hell of a scenario. It's one of the ones that we've kind of stayed away from running written stuff for the time being, but it's definitely on the list of ones I would run if we were looking to run something I didn't have to write for a change. Just a very good scenario. They have a lot of written scenarios. I mean, they they're on drive through RPG and the bestsellers all the time. Yeah, uh, using the written scenarios. Arc Dream has. I don't like all their scenarios. I think some of them are weaker than others. All of them are great. Like it's, it really comes down to personal preference and kind of how you like to interact with the mythos. Um, I think the only weak one is um, PX Poker Night, but also PX Poker Night is maybe the one I'd actually say is the best introduction to Delta Green lore in the weirdest way possible. Cause you're not playing Delta Green agents. You're playing people that will become Delta Green agents. And some shit goes wrong, kind of thing. Like, it's... Yeah, Lover in the Ice is a fantastic one. Um, uh, Impossible Landscapes is their big, kind of, full of fleshed-out campaign. It's just a head trip. I, Yeah, yeah, it's... That is them firing on all four terrible, terrible cylinders and maybe adding on, like, another eight just to... They didn't have to, but they have, like, secrets hidden in a book about secrets that the fan community is still finding. <laughs> That's how like far down their own rabbit hole they choose to go when they write their books. I'm sorry. Run that one past me again. So Impossible Landscapes is full of Easter eggs that are secrets that like reveal the true ending of Impossible Landscapes, kind of. Like so even if you read through all of Impossible Landscapes, like as as written verbatim, there is still stuff in Impossible Landscapes you will have missed because there are a collection of coded messages and other stuff you can pull out of it and I think last time I checked on this, the creators were out there saying that we've got, like, the community had gotten about half of them. Neat. Okay. Yeah. I am like to put and to put impossible landscapes in reference. You can buy the book and then for another like five bucks or something, there's the hey, here's an explanation of impossible landscapes. They basically did an they did their own version of what we're doing now for JCell as a thing for their own book as it came out. They're like, yeah, here's some other stuff you might find useful because. Oh boy, that book is huge and dense. That's funny. Yeah. I think that's I, the one that's like hovered around. It's been like number eight. On, I could be wrong. I'd have to go back and double check. But I think that one's. There's a Delta Green book that's been number eight on. Yeah, it's definitely. RPG bestsellers for I, yeah. months. Like it's just stayed right there. Other books have moved around it, but it's just been in the top yeah. 10 in the same spot forever. Oh, no. In the same way that I think reading. I, and part of why I love Delta Green as much as I do, I'm a huge fanboy for it. I think it's it is one of those games that I think makes you as a player of tabletop RPGs and as a handler, game master, dungeon master, whatever, better at that role by playing it. And it's because, and again, this is kind of a testament to the weirdos that make this game. Every single book for this game is written in canon. The Handler's Guide. The agents got the two core manuals for this game. They'll teach you the game, but they are also completely in character. I think like the first like thing you can read in the handbook guide is a paragraph about how you're an idiot for opening up this book, which is the most Delta Green briefing possible. Like it's, 
I think the Handler's Guide, which is this beautiful, like, 300-page history of Delta Green and how to play the game in more detail and kind of stuff you can reference and all that stuff, it's... Even if you don't like tabletop RPGs, if you're looking for a fantastic alternative history, go read it. It's 20 bucks in PDF format, if I remember correctly. It's a hell of a read. It's one of the craziest histories you'll ever read of conspiracy theories and all that stuff. Like it's, it parallels the real the real world in just incredibly uncomfortable ways. I, it's it's a hell of a book. And then you have Impossible Landscapes, where it's you have two of my favorite kind of core rule books ever because they're just like, no, this is the game, and we're gonna embrace the game from jump. Then you have Impossible Landscapes, where Impossible Landscapes starts off with this preamble that you're not sure if it's meditative in character or the creators actually just like being like hey here's the story and you're like I don't know what's going on and you get to the end of the book and you're like okay what the hell did I just read well a book for a game yeah but what did I just read because <laughs> reading that thing is just as enjoyable in some ways I think as playing it because it's just a hell of a read and yeah it's the if you're looking kind of to play to even if you never played Delta Green, you're slipped to this because you think our podcast is cool and you want to know some mythos stuff, go read Impossible Landscapes. It's one of the greatest horror campaigns written, I think. It's not even that horror-driven. It's in the King and Yellow mythos, and that's a whole other kind of side mythos, which, let's just dive into that now. We've kind of, like, we've worked our way up to that. We've worked our way through Karatekia, we've worked our way through Narlethrotep, and we're now at the end of J-Cell, which is um, Limnophobia, which I really enjoyed the fact that everyone went from not getting why I was calling that arc Limnophobia to, oh, we get it instantaneously with the lake. We got a variety of kind of comments from people being like, why is this arc called uh, Fear of Lakes? And I'm like, you'll find out. Give it a couple episodes. And immediately it was, okay, that lake is messed up. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, and we so, never... Yeah. Wait, are we going straight to the lake? Are we are we skipping the? Did you say we're going straight to the lake? Uh, let's go, let's let's go to limnophobia, I guess. Yeah, like, let's go to the ending, which is the biggest kind of. That's the point where I kind of poured on all of the mythos stuff I could into one arc. That was our building up from minimal arc to kind of medium, a, a media a kind of a, a slowly increasing kind of mythos weirdness. To we got to the end of okay, let's let's. Let's put on the gas. Let's 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 go full Delta Green weirdness with this thing. It's the end. We got to end it big. Like let's blow the sucker out. I thought we were gonna do. Yeah, um, so I suspect you have lots of questions about that. It's the uh, which one you which you want to go through. Well, I feel like we need to at least mention that you reskinned a deep one as a crocodile. Fair, yeah. No, so yeah, let's go back. Let's go back to the um. God, what did I name them? Uh, the TDC. I still can't actually pronounce correctly what I came up with, and uh, stands for Witness the Crocodile. Because Crocodile? 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 Yeah. I... Oh, and that's so, the one where they don't actually have crocodiles in Louisiana. It's, no. it's alligators, right? Yeah. But in French, is the word the same? Was that the catch? Yep. Yep. Okay. I knew there was something like that where I'm just like, all right, we're just going to let this. It's not worth all right, like it, that sounded like yeah, that was I, I incredibly that was deliberate. Yeah, yeah. It's so I I was trying to come up with a Cajun name for that organization because of course it would be Cajun and 
through kind of several layers of Google Translate, I came up with our our, our wonderful cult, the our, our organization, uh, Brotherhood, the TDC, which, yeah, that's our kind of first introduction to Nilathrotep. The marks in the chapel are his. And yeah, we got our first deep one. And I initially debated whether or not we were going to have a deep one in JCell because even Delta Green's official books are pretty upfront about the fact they're like, we understand that deep ones are a little played out at this point. It's up to you, the handler, to decide if you're ever going to use them and how to, how do you make them scary? And we recommend changing them as much as you feel comfortable with. And I had the idea of a land of a kind of freshwater deep one. They're typically kind of off in the ocean and there's no reason there couldn't be an alligator kind of skinned one in Louisiana. I encourage anyone who thought that arc was cool to do more with that because I, in hindsight, that's one of the better ideas I've had because the whole idea of, I call them like shallow ones in my dumb brain. It's just like, I find it unbelievably amusing because their whole thing is they live stupid deep in the ocean so much. So during world war two, Delta Green was depth charging them because they have a special mandate against deep ones. So the whole idea of Cajun country being infected with them was something I found highly entertaining. And actually the name Barnabas is a reference to there's an old game called um War Machine and also it's a side and sister game Horde. And there was an army in that that was a bunch of voodoo practicing uh, uh, alligators. And one of their kind of big leaders was named Barnabas. So I lifted the name Barnabas and made him our little alligator guard in J-Cell. It's also got some biblical connotations, but I didn't take those into consideration. I named it Barnabas. It's a good name for an alligator god, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I... I was, so, are we to assume that the cult named him Barnabas? Or that was always my, That was always my assumption, so I guess to kind of go into that, to Explain Felder some, because I do think Felder is a fascinating character. Deep Ones are born with a genetic memory, meaning that as they become Deep Ones, they start off as kind of hybrid. They're born humans or from whatever species birthed them, and then they, over time, kind of mutate into a lesser Deep One, which is what you technically thought there. And they have genetic memory, meaning they know everything by the time they're Deep One, everything that their previous deep ones knew. So from a Felder standpoint, Felder needs to research kind of in my mind, the, he was trying to do with an eight ball where he could go and ask it questions or get more kind of esoteric knowledge out of it by having it there. And it's a deep one. It needs water. It kind of, there are rules in the game that say it has to be in water or it kind of starts to dry out and die. They are technically kind of held by the same rules as like frogs and amphibians. They do need, water so the whole idea of he has this plot of land on the bayou where he keeps this thing kind of locked up in essentially an alligator cage which is a real thing alligator farms are a real thing you can go check out they are i don't know why more people don't know about them because they should be their own kind of like subset of insane fears because shark cage terrifying the idea of having a cage of alligators or crocodiles underneath a boat that you just kind of have an access port in the center of to get to that's some mad person talk right there. And I've been on a couple of those in my life in various circumstances. I think the idea from a keep an elder god there standpoint was a badass idea for this cult to be up to. So there you have kind of TDC and their weird chapel where they are 
maybe against Felder's wishes even, worshipping this Deep One, because it is, by all measures, kind of godlike by human standards and what's capable of doing, and Felder has it there more as kind of a Ask Jeeves device of, hey, how do I do this? Because it would know, and he's kind of keeping the cult around to keep it alive. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, you said that they have an ins- a you said a genetic memory uh so it's it's like an atavistic they remember their yeah not not previous lives but their 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 parents ancestors yeah. all of that memory compounds in one yeah you and said the they whole- become a lesser deep one for, but they they come out of another creature yeah first? so um in felder's zoo you found a uh hybrid so the whole Innsmouth story i referenced earlier is um Town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts. You should go read that story. It's a fantastic Cthulhu story. It's, I think, kind of the pinnacle Delta Green story. If you look again to Delta Green from a HP Lovecraft writing standpoint, it is a town full of people that are actually secretly going to become Deep Ones. So the way Deep Ones breed is they have kind of a breeding apparatus. The books are always vague about this, where they infect people, they give birth to a hybrid, or they can, I guess, technically they can also still change into a, once you're infected, you can change into a hybrid too, but you're born, by all measures, human. Maybe you're a tad off-looking, maybe your eyes are a tad too big, maybe you have kind of certain genetic manifestations. Remember, remember the descriptions I gave of the various kind of off-looking people in the TDC? Yes. They were they were hybrids. They were kind of half deep one, or were slowly in the process of becoming mm. humans. That tracks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of like you, you eventually grow from being a human baby that's secretly half deep one to a full deep one. In this case, they turn into kind of an equally alligator like or something similar creature and then go off into the water and deep ones. And when you encountered the lab, was basically was Felder growing a replacement for Barnabas that you killed because he needs that answer machine. Okay. So. All right, so that that one was made out of an alligator. That was the idea, right? Um, it could just be that they kind of the ones he found because of the environment grow up to be alligators again. Like, there's no the descriptions for deep ones are kind of they're aquatic ish. They got teeth, they got claws, they got kind of an angler fish headlampy thing going on. That's supposed to be kind of a sensory organ or the reproductive things. I nothing in the mythos really defined us what it looks like. People have their ideas and. They're useful, but yeah, in that case, it was either evolutionary or just kind of based on environment usefulness. It was more alligator than fish, or more alligator than frog, I guess, maybe is the way of thinking of it, or more alligator than Mariana Trench fish. So, would you say the majority of, because Deep Ones originated with Lovecraft, yeah, specifically, right? Um, I say that knowing that is the Lovecraft mythos, but that yeah. There are several major contributions to it that we sometimes don't realize are not Lovecraft, but Durlith or someone else. Um, are the vast majority of Lovecraft's creatures, as far as you know, nautical or aquatic, rather? Big chunk of them, yeah. Uh, the reality is there's not that many true H.P. Lovecraft creatures. There's stuff we think of as part of his mythos because it is, but there's actually, like, if you actually go and like make a full list of all the books, or all the, not all the books, but all the stories that make up the mythos of Call of Cthulhu from H.P. Lovecraft himself, there's not that many of them. There's a bunch, and they kind of all tie into them, and people have kind of since then gone through and 
grabbed and dragged certain things over to kind of flesh things out. Uh, but the ones you get the best descriptions of are typically aquatic, and that's very indicative, actually, of the time of H.P. Lovecraft. Like, the, the big fears were space and the ocean, which by all measures at that point in history was just as alien as space. He also lived in New England where he would have had significant contact with weird shit, or could have had significant contact yeah. with weird shit dredged up more easily than, yeah, no, exactly. say, you know, a Midwesterner. Yeah, weird like stuff myself. comes out of the ocean all the time. Yeah, it, some of the, like, I think kind of the, the thing that had kind of growing up helped me kind of contextualize the Cthulhu mythos the best is there's a bunch of stories of, uh, I think they're oarfish skeletons washing up, and I don't care how modern and evolved you are, if you saw that on a beach at 1am in the morning, you just find a sea monster corpse. Like, it's undeniably a sea monster once all the bones fall off, and once it's just the bones. Like, it's it's not a fish, it's a 40-foot-long snake monster. I mean, even with the flesh on it, it's still probably not the most pleasant yeah. thing to find. Yeah, again, like Cthulhu's kind of driven by the fact that like chunks of giant squid would pop up, and without knowing the full hole of what a giant squid is, like, what's this part of? Like, hell, the fact that we knew what sperm whales were and weren't actively terrified of the fact that okay, it's a giant thing with echo with echolocation and teeth, and we're gonna go hunt it with harpoons. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great thing to do. Yeah. I a lot of his stuff is aquatic. There's been kind of some great stuff in fleshing out the non-aquatic parts of it over time. He fleshed out some, too, like the hounds I mentioned earlier, the crystal hounds, the the ones that jump through corners. They're very kind of abstractly astral, for lack of a better phrase. They are very much kind of a mental planar thing. And yeah, I guess like either it's very abstract kind of planar concepts or things that spend a lot of time wet is the general kind of H.P. Lovecraft contributions to his own mythos. The other stuff kind of comes from other places. And I think it's also one of those things where kind of just like there's this inherent human, maybe not fear, but reaction to just kind of that imagery of things. Like even Pastor, that is not a in any way, shape, or form technically a wet individual when it comes to kind of the mythos stuff, is still this kind of tentacled, massive thing that would look very at home in the depths of the ocean as opposed to kind of walking around in a field. And so with the deep ones specifically, again, they can transform almost in a xenomorph style. They Can they transform other things into themselves and, and do they maintain characteristics of those things? Is that, does that show up anywhere else in the mythos? Yeah, or actually, so yes. In the game? Yeah, there's there's some stuff about that. It's not well used, both from a kind of lore standpoint and from a playing standpoint, because the rules are pretty upfront about it. Like, it's, yeah, so it is possible for Deep Ones to breed with non-humans. Um, you just kind of get some lower intelligence offspring, and they're kind of more shark-like or whatever-like, what it bred with kind of thing. I guess, like, whales are pretty common. They have a name for them, too. They're called, like, uh, Special Ones or something, which... Maybe not the greatest name for them, but yeah, I'm not complaining on the exact name. But yeah, there are kind of non-humid, human deep ones, and they exist. They're few and far between. I guess they're kind of weirdly revered in deep one society, what that it is. I guess that's kind of one of the weirder parts. We don't really, there's no reason to talk about that ever in Delta Green context, but 
the deep ones have a whole society and deities say, that aren't Cthulhu in society. Uh, yeah, right. so I. Uh, one of Delta Green's major missions in its early days was bombing a Deep One nest city development town, I guess, off the cope, um, off the cope, um, off the New England coast, constantly. Like it's every single one of the Mythos kind of organizations, whether it's um, uh, M Epic, which is the Canadian branch, or Delta Green, which is in the, which is the U.S. organization seems to have one animal or one kind of thing they are maybe not uniquely, but especially interested in. And for Delta Green, it was at least until kind of the modern version of Delta Green deep ones. And Epics is Wendigo's for the record. I mean, I feel like if I'm not mistaken, most organizations in Canada have to deal with Wendigo's as a major yeah, all times, so. that's not Delta Green. Thing. That's a real thing. There, Canada is lousy with Wendigos. This exact second. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. Yeah, to me. So they, they, I mean, that's not an actual breeding process. They, they, it, they sort of infect, like they infect. You said right. They transform yeah, a, it, another creature not, into a deep one. Yeah, it's it's parasitic or kind of um, again, like it's not breeding in the way that we humans would define it, but it's still it's that they impregnate a host with their offspring that breeds a hybrid that then slowly kind of fully evolves into a deep one to spawn their lifespan and then goes off to the ocean. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Now, and I, a part of the challenge of Delta Green, as I kind of touched on, is everyone knows what a deep one is. It's about kind of keeping them different and entertaining and I, I still love the fact that I named that entire campaign Deep South, and people still don't get what I'm referencing in that occasionally. So, okay, it's it's in the Deep South. Yes. What else? There's a Deep One. <laughs> yeah. Lesser Deep One, admittedly. Yeah, and I guess like the important thing to bring up is the fact that, like, there's a distinction between Deep Ones and Lesser Deep Ones. Lesser Deep Ones is what most people think of when they think of Deep Ones. Deep, the true Deep Ones are big, kind of hulking, much harder to kill entities. Uh, in perspective, I think Lesser Deep Ones have like 20 health points in the game. Uh, deep One Deep Ones have like 60. They big, and they have armor, and even when you kill them, they may not actually be dead. They're kind of semi-immortal by human standards. You can just kind of mess them up real bad. You can kill them, I guess, technically, too. Yeah, they're, they're like orca-sized with some frequency. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, and like, I, I, before we move on from Deep Ones, I guess, like, and then there's this whole kind of collection of Deep Ones-specific gods between them and Cthulhu. Like, up. That's where Dagon comes from and stuff like that, who is just a either a greater deep one or a deep one god or just a massive deep one that has control over and that I guess like for reference, like despite the fact that um Insmith is the uh is totally a tale of Cthulhu mythos, uh the town worships Dagon, not Cthulhu, the record. <laughs> Mighty Dagon. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, again, like for in a weird twist, like for the mythos that's named after him, Cthulhu doesn't show up that much in the original kind of canonical stories that make up his mythos. Lots of other kind of smaller things. 
I guess I have any questions about um let's go over. Yeah, so we're, if we're done with Deep South, let's move on to uh Felder and his ilk. It's a terrifying picture of Dagon. Sorry, I it, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that's what it looked like. I had a different mental image. That's and it may not. Horrific. Yeah. Ugh. All right. So sorry. Okay. So after Deep South, um, obviously we had the Felder incident yep. up in um, Idaho, in that weird town in Idaho. Um, I don't know how much to. Yeah, our, our, if there's our trip into New Fool. Yeah, that, that's actually weirdly, despite kind of a, a bunch of weirdness happening, that we've already touched on the Karatekia stuff. That's kind of the big overarching thing in some ways of the story that was kept being brought up in many ways throughout the center and even at the start. Yeah, it's it's the end of a Karatekia story. It introduces Nara Lethrotep as kind of just around and chilling and kind of the weirdness that is Nara Lethrotep. Um Felder is uh Thule. He's got some kind of uh, he's actually a golem technically the, the things you guys kept fighting over and over was my kind of riff on a golem, which if you're not sure what the golem is, it's kind of a Jewish clay monster, for the lack of a better phrase. Uh, I figured, given Felder's whole kind of proclivities, he probably stole that knowledge from someone at some point of how to do that, and had his own kind of messed up version of that going on. But yeah, I think kind of one of the things um, we touched on some. That. Yeah, I've been to Prague twice. <laughs> well aware of what a golem is. Yeah. No, I think one of the things we kind of touched on was that whole kind of story is full of various kind of things that are associated with life, with like eternal life, like the mushrooms will a probably come back in some down the road, negative modifier stuff because I just find mushrooms fascinating. And also some of the stuff from that was straight lifted from the show Hannibal, which uh, if you're looking for a show that kind of influences at least how I go about some of the kind of weirder descriptions in the negative modifier stuff, I explain Go check out Hannibal. The kind of the tableaus they put together for that show are horrific and just artistically inspired. And I couldn't help myself to kind of uh, there's an episode involving a mushroom grower that I just couldn't help myself not to lift some stuff of that for other things because it's just the evilest thing possible. I guess what I would want to ask you about is the catalog of the zoo. Yeah. So we went through some of the stuff. I mean, obviously there was just legitimate zombies in there. Yeah. Um, we talked about there was a ghoul wearing a blind guardian t-shirt, which is a fun detail. Um, there was something amorphous. Yeah. I don't think we ever figured out what the hell that was. No. And that's because a fellow doesn't totally know what that thing is. And so there's a, so that's a, um, that's a Yoth's the thought feature kind of thing. That's an amorphous. Thing that just it's their teeth. I don't think it's a hunting whore with my initial plan for that thing. I, I guess I kind of break my rule for a second. You guys did the correct thing in burning that thing. That thing was dangerous. Should we not have burned some of that stuff? Hmm? We burned everything, didn't we? Yeah, no, you, you were correct in burning that thing instead of leaving it. Like that thing. If it had gotten loose, it would have been quite bad. And then there was the the moon grass too, or whatever the hell that yeah, was. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, 
if that thing had cut you would have been it would have been bad, but beyond that it was just kind of there for flavor. I it's uh, I will probably use something again at some point in the future, but I call that stuff um kind of a gravestone grass where it's it's not clear if it's growing because there's death around it or if it's kind of there because there's death. It's not really totally clear where it comes from, if that makes any sense. Okay. That's something of your invention or that's that's a me thing at that point. So and I guess to rewind back to our black mass creature, that's a vague reference to a HP Lovecraft story called The Dunwich Horror. Which is kind of the story of two brothers, technically. Maybe spoilers on that for a long ass story, but uh, yeah, it, it's a story of who is the true monster, but also the creature that's maybe not the true monster, but also maybe definitely the true monster is this kind of mass of tentacles and eyes and teeth and mouths and stuff like that. And in written in the rules, quite dangerous. Maybe not necessarily benevolent or kind of evil, but still quite dangerous by human standards. It doesn't sound Lovecraftian at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we we did talk a little bit about the ghouls um, after the fact, too, because there was that ghoul in there. And yeah, you-, you found some research on them. Yeah, so I threw the ghouls in kind of as a primer for ongoing seasons, but also because I find ghouls fascinating. Delta Green doesn't act like this, but there's a chunk, not a big chunk, of various mythos creatures within the Delta Greeniverse and kind of within the Cthulhu mythos and all that stuff that aren't actually dangerous. And if you're going to leave something alive, ghouls maybe aren't the worst thing to leave alive. Like they're not even inherently harmful to humans in certain circumstances. They actually might be well useful in a grisly sense because by religious rules, they don't eat living humans. They only eat the dead and the deader, the better. Ironically, the chances of them kind of eating a um, living homeless person or something low. It happens because ghouls get desperate, but uh, ghouls are interesting. They are either born ghouls or you can kind of get struck with the ghoul curse and become a ghoul. They are not undead, but not really alive in the necessary sense. Yeah, they, they kind of have some horse-like features. They have hooves. There's obviously a mutation aspect to them. They have some inherent magical abilities. They can kind of step into something called the Dreamlands. Will it's how they get around. I think probably one of the cooler Delta Green lore aspects of ghouls is that there was a giant crowd of them that was living in Louisiana at one point, that during Katrina were on a kind of smorgasbord thing, and Delta Green showed up and wiped them all out under cover of uh, uh, hurricane relief. So when you say they're born ghouls, by other ghouls yeah. or by humans? Okay. Both potentially. Yeah, it's they are they <sighs> Ghouls are one of the few kind of weirdly human things. Again, they're not necessarily evil. They're just within the Dutch community there's always the question of okay, why do we actually kill ghouls? Like they're not dangerous, so they're not bad, and the answer is because yeah, they're not going to like kill a bunch of humans or like bring about the end of the world. They like living here just as much as we do, and they sure as hell love subway tunnels. It's the fact that if you have a normal person see them and they go, okay, that exists, what else exists? And that's the kind of bigger question Delta Green's answering. It's the you can't have someone pulling at the string of the conspiracy theory and unraveling the big tapestry of everything is normal, nothing is weird, shut up. 
Okay. That one in particular that we ran into was one that had been transformed. Not necessarily. You just have good taste in music. That's true. Uh, again, they're just, they are weirdly human. They have human ambitions. They have families. They have, admittedly, they're kind of ghoulified versions of that. They, they have their own stuff going on, but it's completely within kind of canonical reasons to have a ghoul that, like, is way into human music. There's no reason for it not to be. It might be soothing or something like that. Like, Kind of one of the funnier ghoul things. Um, the ghouls think of Stalin as a god, as the great provider, because of the mass death toll he put on Russia, and it, they think of him as, oh shit, there's all these things to eat because of him. Grizzly, but that's Delta Green. Well, so is the Katrina stuff. Yeah. Um, Alright, I don't remember what else was in the uh, the zoo. Exactly. That about covers it. The zombies were zombies. Um, Marlene is Marlene. Marlene is a Delta Green kind of creation for Last Things Last. She is, he is, it is an outsider, which is a whole kind of thing from an outside dimension. We touched on that, though, as part of the episode, I believe, kind of when when he got banished. They're a fascinating concept. Like, it's it's almost kind of the Delta Green equivalent of a ghost, except that ghosts also are kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, that's kind of it for the Felder stuff. Um, most of it was kind of weird for weird's sake, and some of the stuff may come back in later dates, some of it won't. Yeah, I, mostly he's kind of the driving home of the Karotechia stuff, and just kind of the, what's the right phrase, the desperation a crazy desperate man will go to. I, it's so weird talking about Felder, because every instinct I have is to like refer to him as our crazy magic Nazi wizard thing, and he's not. He's so much worse, and we didn't talk about this actually as part of Ironically, new um, Deep South. There's an important detail I threw in there that's completely unimportant, but it's everything to do with the fact that Felder is dual society. So I may not mention this, but I made a bit. I when we asked about the person they were going to sacrifice to Barnabas, I mentioned she has blonde hair. The Thule were obsessed with the whole idea of Aryan blood being the key to magic. So, of course, he's only sacrificing a very specific group of people to his Deep One because he wants the best Deep One kind of thing. He is prioritizing blondes, blonde hair, blue-eyed people as the best food to feed to his alligator because he wants to See, grow up big and strong. That threw me because if it, you know, if they revere Aryans as the Nazis did, then why would they be sacrificing one? That was, that was something that stuck out stuck out to me when we were it's, playing. There's that, but then there's also the whole idea of, um, and this is kind of a, this is um, a Karatekia thing, and also just kind of a, a Thul thing. And it's like one of the better examples of this in some ways actually is brought up in the game, um, the, the second new Wolfenstein game. The, it's called the, the New Colossus, the first one, like what the second one's called. But basically, it's the idea that like even if in the uh, the Nazis of World War II and kind of that ilk would look down on modern neo-Nazis. That's just the weakest, most poser-ass bitches ever. They just they, they viewed them as tools that were good for being consumed, used, discarded kind of thing. They'd have no tolerance for them because they weren't German. So in Felder's case, this blonde woman is better than, say, like a brown-haired woman but she's still basically the skater food. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I... Yeah, they, they had a whole thing of like the 
the mysticism aspects of it had this whole kind of concept of Aryan enough. Like it's it's a whole like blood. It's the worst end of the blood purity stuff that that whole thing was obsessed with. We shouldn't travel down. I thought yeah. he was. I thought Hitler was good with anyone who was blonde haired and blue eyed. Um, nope. No. Okay. Uh, I guess because there were some Slavs that fit that description. But yeah, there's neat. there's a cascading aspect of things where it's like it's a it's a narrowing of things as you kind of got crazier and crazier into that stuff. Yeah, and that, and that's and that's that's weird history at that point. You can go back to kind of even before that stuff was a bunch of weird stuff of that going on. But yeah, like it kind of it goes from blonde haired blue eye to German blonde haired like it starts off as like, okay, eh to eh to eventually it's like, okay, you have to be blonde haired, blue eyed, Aryan hundred percent German and like X height and X weight and I, I don't know, have a certain chin shape or something. Like it, it it gets like insanely specific as time goes on. And this is a this is real world, not Delta Green. Mm. That whole kind of like purity thing goes down to an insane rabbit hole where you're kind of amazed it's held on to the modern era. I, I I guess like yeah, kind of to go far afield right now. Are you familiar with the kind of weird white supremacist relationship with DNA tests? No, but I can suss that one out pretty easily. Yeah, there's a trend a couple of years back where people in certain communities getting DNA tests and then finding out they weren't as white as they thought they were and freaking the fuck out about it and then getting ostracized by the groups they were in, which fuck them at that point. Yeah. But that's enough about that. Yeah. And that's it. That's Felder's thing. Like it's, he, he is the epitome of kind of all that crazy bullshit. Hmm. Yeah. As you that's, said, interestingly enough was prolonging his life through Jewish magic. Yeah. Oh, I, he's the biggest hypocrite ever. Like I, it's, for for all of for all of Felder's bluster and kind of badassery and kind of like look how powerful I am, he is still a sickly man in a bed, prolonging his life with the most craven and desperate acts possible. That like has to resort to Jewish golem magic to try and stop the Delta Agents. Like, yeah, I guess I should ask, what were the um, the mushrooms about? Mushrooms are kind of associated a bunch with eternal life. There's a bunch of theories that, like, if you could use mushrooms in some, because they can grow off of anything. There's a whole bunch of kind of symbolism that goes along with mushrooms and death and rebirth because they grow out of death with a lot of frequency. Um, some of those mushrooms probably have life prolonging effects. Like, again, the corpse that is Felder is still technically alive, kept alive by something and it's not just kind of his relationship with that urn that's powering his golem magic like in my mind the mushrooms were probably being used and ground up into kind of like a supplement of some kind that was prolonging his life uh as part of that like i at one point kind of felt those early iterations i actually thought about making him that he had essentially turned his entire body into a giant mushroom like he had essentially what was initially Felder had become a mushroom bed that was keeping him alive as a kind of a symbiotic relationship and the urn was kind of powering, was letting him go out and do stuff like that. But that felt like it was going too far afield at that point. But I like the mushrooms. I still like the mushrooms as part of that. It felt of course Felder's into mushrooms. It's a creepy thing to farm. And they're again kind of weird tentacle plants. Of course they're here kind of thing. And they're definitely a great way to dispose of bodies in this universe. I also don't want to go too into them because those I, I have plans for those mushrooms in the future. 
but yeah, they're, they're all the base level kind of mushroom symbolism of they are linked to kind of eternal life and death and the cycle and gaining something from death, if you will. Very much intentional. And Felder probably definitely had something going on with them. Okay, that works for me. Yeah. Where do you get all those people? So, this is kind of maybe going to be breaking with my one rule of like, we're not going to kind of, kind of second guess some J-Cell stuff. You guys never read Felder's journal. And Felder had been there for a long time, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, you've got kind of the history of the family Felder, if you will, or Felder's farm and him fleeing over to the U.S. kind of mid-World War II when taking up home in Iowa to get away from things. Uh, very reminiscent of our kind of uh, whole kind of Project Paperclip, we brought a bunch of German scientists over to do stuff like the space race and because they were terrible but cutting edge, the whole idea of this wizard escaping to the US where he could kind of disappear and do things. I yeah, it, it those aren't necessarily new, but also like he's got a golem. He's got an army of golems, he can kind of send them off everywhere he wants. Like it's also the middle of nowhere, Iowa. People vanish all the time. For better or worse. Idaho. Sorry, Idaho, yes. Said Iowa. Yeah. Different place. Yep. I I should know that too. I specifically picked Idaho because it's just it's so remote in some places. Like kind people asked about some of the thumbnails we use for I use for some of the kind of cover art. Yeah, that that weird kind of crop circle thing, that is the real town of Malton. I put a little bit of kind of alterations into it to make it a little more artistic looking. But that is what an aerial shot of the town of Malta looks like. And uh, if anyone's looking for a good laugh, uh, I don't think this made it into the show. But when we were looking at, I believe Peter's car- Peter was looking at the street view of Malta. There was a used car lot, and there was a horse tied up to the yeah. fence of it. They just caught on Google yeah. Street View. It's like that's excellent. Yeah, I, I went back to it was going to be um, I- if it was going to be Idaho or Wyoming because they both have these similar just kind of gigantic swaths of land where like you could honestly get away with anything like I, I i'm sure you can't but at the same time just visually and mentally like it's they're so large and so flat and there's just nothing there to the point where it's like you could shoot someone and so long as the bullet had enough arc get over the horizon you could get away with it because they couldn't see you kind of thing like it's just there's nothing there except farms that in a lot of cases are failing i through JSL, I managed to make a weird deep dive into various failing unincorporated territories of the U.S. And God, that's depressing. Like it's so like the, the um kind of population numbers I used a bunch were real population numbers because the numbers I came up with in my head weren't like depressing enough. The actual numbers were like, yeah, this town lost fifty percent of its population in a year and a half. <laughs> it went from having a thousand people to three hundred. Why? Well, everyone over eighty died. <laughs> Yeah, um, the yeah, I do worry about Middle America, but and that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I worry yeah. about small town America. It, it is a concern. There, there is it is inherently depressing to see these little towns. And I coming from the Midwest, I will see that a lot. Where I drive through these little towns, where I don't know what industry they have. Maybe they're farm communities in some cases, but in a lot of cases, 
at one point they had a factory at one point trains went through there and that has not been true for a long time and the generations that remember a life like that are almost gone and i don't know what happens to those places next and that makes me sad because a lot of those places are are great places but well and that's a fantastic transition to brookville because that is the absolute story of brookville like i I least I think I spent like two or three days trying to find a town that had just the most depressing world abandoning its story possible in Kansas, and eventually I found Brookville. And in kind of making JSL, I learned that like trying to mix some of these places up was often harder than finding places that matched exactly what you were looking for, which is tragic in its own way. Okay, so what was tragic? How did you come upon Brookville then? Uh, so the, the process is always simple. If I'm looking for these stuff, I pick a state and then kind of I narrow it in for especially sort of uncorporated territories, and then kind of make my way through a list of those. And eventually, you find, eventually I found Brookville. Yeah, again, like the number I kept throwing around was the fact that the entirety of the township that thing exists in could fit inside of a um, like a major NFL team stub, a re- uh, stadium. That's true. Like the entire township, which had, I think it was like 60 different territory, uh, different kind of things made it up, a total population of 30,000 people. And I want to say almost like 80% of that population lived in one chunk of it. And it was more like, hey, there's this town, and then there's everything around it for a three hour drive. That's also technically part of this town because it has to be. Yeah, I because wait, so it has a three-hour radius. Basically, just, yeah, because well, it's uh, it, when this they, doesn't belong to anyone else. Yeah, so it's well, yours. No, I, you understand the concept of incorporated territory? Cause it's a fascinating nightmare. I mean, I I understand. Like, I I guess I I, I know what I've seen on unincorporated towns before. I didn't know that they necessarily spanned for miles i always thought they were just weird places between other municipalities well that's the thing it's basically like two things happen either where it's it's one of two things either it is indeed kind of like yeah there's nine houses here and it's not a town or in the case of lots of places they were towns and they degraded down into unincorporated territory basically they kind of they proved they could not sustain themselves as towns and over time were demoted down to unincorporated territory that's the case of brookville like it was a tub. It had a train. It was a train stop town. It was a cattle town kind of thing. And population goes down. Industry goes down. It loses that town status slowly over time. I'm not sure it's quite an incorporated territory, but it's on the cusp. Like uh, the town, uh, the uh, town you went to ultimately for um, Deep South. That was again like it had a. It was a major town center, and then it wasn't anymore. It went from it's like yeah over the span of like thirty years it went from having a population of like five thousand people to twenty question mark twenty yeah I've been to a few places like that yeah they're they're very real and they make for interesting settings and Brookville was kind of a a perfect unfortunate town if someone listens to this podcast from Brookville I apologize for having Carcosa swallow your town but also. If you're a fan of the mythos, you kind of get why Carcosa came for your town. <laughs> Should we just dive into this at this point? I guess we've kind of walked around Brookville and Carcosa and Haster and King and Yellow enough that it's worth diving into this. So I suspect we, you have a bunch of questions about this one. Uh, sure, if you want. Um, well, my first one was going to be if you wanted to say anything about the, the 
anything more, I guess, about the play aspect of it. And yeah, you know, when we're in the yeah. storage unit, we can hear the backstage. Yeah. So let's talk chatter. about the King in Yellow, I guess. Okay. So the King in Yellow is a it's a collection of short stories that predate H.P. Lovecraft. It's written by one Robert Chambers. Uh, it is arguably, definitely the only good thing that guy ever wrote. Um, he wrote The King in Yellow and a bunch of call them novels to be nice to his legacy, but The King in Yellow is definitely the thing he is most known for. The King in Yellow is a collection of short stories, all that kind of it, yeah, it's a collection of, uh, I think it's, it's rhythm off. It's the repair of rep- uh, reputations, the mask in the count of the dragon, the yellow sign, uh, the Desmolestes, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, the prophet's paradise, the street of four winds, the street of first shell, the street of our lady of fields, and Rubari. And if you've ever read these, there's kind of a variety of, uh, qualities to them, I guess, but, they all they, they kind of revolve around this idea of the forbidden play. That's where the name comes from. It's the King in Yellow. And it's the story of this enigmatic king that shows up. And it's not really about him. It's the fact that whenever this play is performed, a lot of people wind up dead. Yeah, it's, it's a two-act play. It's French in origin, potentially, but it's also not totally clear. And I love the King in Yellow. Not play or even the books it's based off of more of the concept when it comes to mythos characters the kingdom yellow is one of my favorites just because he is unbelievably confusing and the whole idea that indirectly at least maybe all of jcell's kind of time getting to this point was the various acts of charles xanthos's version of the king in yellow basically his play kind of thing, the tragedy of the king in yellow kind of thing the which again ends in death and destruction for everyone involved in it kind of thing and the whole idea that basically like so our, our backstage moments we go to what in my notes was called the yellow box um the green box that jay still gets access to that's obviously got something weird going on with it uh yeah, in my notes it's called the Yellow Box. It's not an official Green Box location. It is, again, kind of a, another place made real by the influence of Carcosa and the King in Yellow kind of thing. Like, it's, if I couldn't have added enough, I think it's the fact that it's got a weird number, it's out of place, and it's kind of like, it doesn't make sense for its location. It's all kind of what this whole mythos chunk is about. It's impossible things. And it was, at least the idea I was playing with at the time, was it was the last kind of moment before the big play began, kind of thing. Maybe all this was leading up to it, maybe this was kind of the intermission, but we are going to hit the ground running, we were kind of going to be full-on Carcos, we are going to be full-on weird, like, it's the, it was the point where me as the handlers and I kind of, like, finally just kind of kick it into full gear and go, okay, cool, we're doing this, and Sandy checks all around, like, we're going full mythos weirdness, like, things are going to stop making sense, Real quick, the rules are going out the window, not playing rules, but like the rules that we've been playing with as reality in this game so far are kind of bending in real abstract ways because we're not in reality anymore. And it was it, me having a theater background couldn't overcome the fact where it's like, oh, let's let's have a curtain call. Well, not a curtain call, but let's have a five minutes for the agents kind of thing before they embark on 
the final chunk of J Cell kind of stuff. That's like that's Cinemop and Cell. It's like kind of let's play up the dramatic aspects of the fact that they are about to go into madness persona personified. Like it's beyond this point lies madness kind of thing, and let's have some fun with this whole idea of the King in Yellow is just messing with them from the moment they got in Brookville. I did really like the the museum exhibits. I thought that was a great touch. And yeah, I just I that was I very I, I really enjoyed that. That was a that was a great idea. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those ones where kind of it's the when I wrote kind of J Cell, it wasn't called J Cell at the time, it was just kind of nebulous campaign I had kicking around for this where I wrote for this and I it's one of those, the whole idea was kind of this idea that at the end you go through what seem like big mythos events, then you wind up in Brookville at the museum at Xanthos's kind of whole shtick and it's just it's the epitome of you're out of your league. Like you're so the doors are wide open. Like it's this whole idea that you've kept these secrets. You're part of this whole conspiracy thing. You've done a good job at being secret. You've done everything right. And then you walk into a warehouse that is apparently also the Louvre. And there's an exhibit waiting there for you. And it's like, hi, here's your darkest secrets. I know all of them. Why? Because I am a god. And there's nothing you can do here except enjoy your exhibit. Yeah, it's you guys. I had a lot of fun playing that out for you guys. It was. I th- it, things have to end. I think kind of it was it was my way of kind of giving a satisfactory ending for hopefully at least for kind of J Cell. Like you get to kind of see this whole character actor characters come on. Like in the rooms did change depending on your character. Uh, Jackal's whole lighter obsession or have ongoing lighter conflict with uh, jet lag <laughs> made that whole kind of thing extra fun. Yeah, it's. I hope the rooms would be co- the rooms would be cool. I think the rooms came off well. Uh, you played through it. I kind of, I, I know, actually, I know the ending of J Cell was a bit of a shocker for everyone, just given the bleakness of it. But I'm hoping that kind of up to the end, people were having a lot of fun with just the inherent weirdness of. Okay, yeah, this we're in a museum to us. This is strange. I mean, I don't know if there's a better way to just you know, there. I don't know if there would would have been a better way to have the villain let us know that yeah, he's just on to us. Like, yeah, he, it doesn't matter. But. Yeah hosed i mean i well i i had hoped that i i didn't know that that was that particular night was going to be the very last session um which was a little dis- i mean i really enjoyed the game so it was a little a little disappointing i would have liked to have kept going not from a story yeah. standpoint it was it was a, it was a solid ending of the story i just didn't want to oh, yeah, no, you, you never want a campaign to end if it's a good campaign and delta green has the tendency to be a very good campaign so ending it's always tricky <laughs> Yeah, so it's yeah. I think that that was a great send off for the characters and everything. I obviously would have preferred if Yoten hadn't gotten trapped in Carcosa. But... Well, so you want an explanation of that? Because <laughs> there's a very sure. good reason of why Yoten got stuck on like everyone else. So he was the only one that said the word Haster. Okay. Yeah. So let's go full into this. I guess the Haster mythos is absolutely weird and it's full of contradictions because it's intentionally unclear if Carcosa, the King in yellow and Haster are all the same thing, two separate things, three separate things, two things and a third thing that lives near the other two things. Uh, It's 
it's deliberately weird. Uh, what is what is known is that there's a city called Carcosa. It may or may not be Haster. Haster may or may not be the King in Yellow. The King in Yellow may or may not be the only resident in the in the city of Carcosa. He may or may not be the king of it. He's just kind of the thing that drives it. And it's all about infection. So the Yellow Sigil that I made a bunch of references without saying officially what it was is a thing called the Yellow Sign. And the one difference that might have made the kind of changes could have been made in the campaign, again, I'm breaking my rule on this one, Delta Green has very specific rules on how to handle the Yellow Sign. And it is actually to straight murder people that have seen it. Because the Yellow Sign is incredibly dangerous and incredibly infectious. You kind of got a taste of that where once you saw the yellow sign, it was just kind of popping up everywhere all of a sudden. It makes you do bad things, and it's the mark of Haster, the King in Yellow, Carcosa. Again, it's not clear, but eventually, once you've seen it, it drives you absolutely insane and drives you to Carcosa, which is either the realest city in existence, realer than reality, and that reality is a reflection of, or a active nightmare. Again, Carcosa is a living contradiction of itself. The whole idea of it being that, like, either it's the sane, it's so insane, it's the sanest place on earth, or everything but Carcosa is actually an illusion or a bad reflection. And part of that is the name Haster is unbelievably powerful. Basically, once you've heard the word, once you've heard the name Haster, you belong to Haster. And once you enter the Nightlands slash Carcosa, kind of the space, but the Nightlands are the space between the real world and Carcosa in some ways, being aware of Haster, not a great move kind of thing. Like, he's aware of you, you're aware of him, even if you don't know what Haster or who Haster is, you're his guy now, just by knowing the name. And I guess to kind of like to explain the ending of Jotunsum, Haster, in theory, is in the lake, Lake Holly in Carcosa, the city on the lake. Sorry, Carcosa is a city on the Lake of Holly, and in theory, Haster's in that lake. He may also be the lake. He may also be the city. He may also be the suns reflected in the lake. Again, it's annoyingly vague. But the whole idea was that when you looked out the window that last time, you saw Haster and Haster gotcha at that point. Not a good way of explaining that in context of the story, unfortunately. It's kind of just a lore drop you had to get. But you were the only character doing character say Haster out loud. And it was the, oh, whoever looks at that lake, looked at that lake. He was drawn to that lake. And that's what gotcha so- ultimately. And about the lake, we're going to have to talk about um, yeah. Jumper's arm. Yep. Okay. Just want to go through, uh, should we talk about the arm real quick? Well, I mean, I um, I didn't have any further questions. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk I'm about that arm. Part. Yeah. Let's absolutely talk about that arm. So, uh, technically, Jumper never loses her arm. It just winds up in the real Lake Holly until you guys got out of the Carcosa effective zone, I guess, enough for her to pull her arm back. It was, te- was technically always there. It was still always technically attached, and you may remember I asked if anyone wanted to look specifically at the stump. If you'd done that, 
bad things would have happened, and no one did, so you were smart on doing that kind of thing. But yeah, so if you'd, if you'd inspected where the arm was supposed to be, you'd have realized that the arm was still somehow there, technically, just not. And that's because, so, and people are really vibing on the lake. I'm happy people like the lake a lot. But the whole Lake Holly is this kind of, it's the most concrete part of Carcosa in some ways, aside from the name Carcosa. It, it reflects an impossible sky with impossible stars and suns and everything about it impossible. So I love that about it. Again, like, I, I love Carcosa. I, I wrote this entire thing, and then, like, I think three weeks after we started doing J-Cell, Impossible Landscapes got announced. I'm like, ah, oh, shit, looks like I'm ripping off Impossible Landscapes now, but I'm not. Like, I wrote this shit before we got to this, but oh well, cool. And, yeah, so when Jumper reaches into the lake, she's reaching into kind of a as written, kind of a point where Carcosa and the real world have overlapped. Um, kind of my hinting at that was the fact that as you're walking through the town, even as you enter Brooklyn, you're seeing kind of this reflection of Carcosa. You're seeing buildings that can't possibly be there. You're seeing the reality of what these decorations are, which are these kind of entropied and decayed representations of them. That may or not even actually be there, but given the kind of blight that is Carcosa, the influence of the Yellow King and Carcosa and all that stuff, this is what happens to it. And Charles Anthos is the King in Yellow. No beating about the bush on that one. I hope people got that one for the most part. Uh, His name, kind of in abstract terms, means King Yellow. Xanthos is a shade of yellow. Charles is the most common king name, I guess. And I didn't want to open the podcast, but I thought the fact that you picked up, like, hey, your name's... It's like your name, and I'm like, yeah, I didn't even think of that. It's just Charles, because that's kingly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it was their chance. It's the it was JSL's chance to interact with the king in yellow in kind of a meaningful way, and I hope people had fun with that because he's a fun character to play because he's just unbelievably evil and just he, like if you'd asked, are you the king in yellow? He'd have been like, yup. <laughs> and there's I, nothing I, you can do about it. <laughs> I've done that before too, where it's like you actually you give a character your name and don't even realize that it's also your name just yeah. because it sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like when I, in my notes I'm like it's like good Charles does this and I'm like right, that's your name technically. I'm like nope, nothing good about Charles Anthus. He's a terrible individual, but it's oddly kind of nice. He wants you to come to that festival. Yeah, so and the lake and so the Nightlands are a thing from various kind of written Delta Green things where there's a space between reality and Carcosa that kind of acts as a buffer transition zone where kind of the weirdness of Carcosa can spill over and reality of reality can kind of intermesh and things can happen that are not outside the realm of either of them kind of thing. And the entire town of Brookville is our Nightfalls in this case. It's from that's a reference to the kind of canonical Delta Green first part of Impossible Landscape scenario called Nightfalls, which is an investigation into a building that has it's four stories tall, but night is five stories. And I'll leave it at that kind of thing. Either go check that out or kind of interpret what you will. But the entire town of Brookville in this case is kind of this it's slowly being swallowed by the night floors or the equivalent of the night floors, the night lands, whatever into Carcosa, because Carcosa, one of the king in yellow's things is he 
just wants to make the city of Carcosa bigger. And there's actually not a lot in Delta Green that would make a town vanish. So I, I, I had fun with the whole idea that this interpretation of the King in Yellow, I'm not even sure it's the King in Yellow, it's just a King in Yellow, or a manifestation of the King in Yellow goes around the world, specifically the U.S. in this case, kind of finding towns that are on their last legs and just kind of gives them that final push into desperation and entropy and madness and just kind of pulls them out of reality into Carcosa and makes them part of Carcosa. And that's kind of where I, I mentioned kind of the, the town of Brookville being this perfect thing where just it's, again, apologies to the town of Brookville and its wonderful residents that exist there, I'm sure your town has nothing going for it. I'm so sorry. Like, every industry there has left. <laughs> every industry there is kind of bad for it, as best I can tell. Like, it's just the history of that town is this slow slide into this town will not always exist. <laughs> I'm sorry for that, but as a result, it made it a perfect kind of candidate for the Yellow King to kind of come by and be like, yeah, I can make something of this town. I could use a new suburb to my city. And if there's anyone in Brookville or any of the locations mentioned in Delta or in uh, J Cell, uh, please let us know. Yeah. yeah, please reach out. We'd be fascinated yeah. to hear from you. The emails in the uh, podcast descriptions, and you can find us on Twitter on um, Neg Mod Pod. Yeah, I absolutely go for it. Yeah, I, I would love to hear about that and hear just how terribly I misrepresented your towns, or worse, how dead on I got your towns. I, yeah, I tried to do enough research as to be an accurate description. I tried not to be too hard on them, but. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Yes, for a town to be swallowed up into not hell but madness, the dimension. Uh, Brookville, you were a perfect candidate. Unfortunately, yeah, it's uh, yeah for everything that that whole kind of mythos is about—the kind of just slow descent into madness and desperation and just kind of null and pure nihilism. Yeah, Kansas is a great place to find places like that. I. I- Never been, but uh, it's flat. <laughs> I had guessed as much. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess we got any more questions. We covered the lake. We kind of touched on Charles Zampas. It's actually not that much to tell about Charles Zampas without going into this kind of full King and Yellow details, and at least kind of interpret what you will. Either the entirety of J Cell is a version of the King in Yellow because there's no cohesive one version of the King in Yellow that, that ends in tragedy and ends the trip to Carcosa, essentially. Uh, yeah, it's, um, or it's just kind of the tragedy of J-Cell once they reach the town of Brookville. I, the initial name of that arc was actually called All Town, um, was either Welcome to Carcosa or All Roads Lead to Carcosa because I couldn't, I kept going back and forth which one I wanted to go with and I decided to put in the name Carcosa and the actual kind of arc title was too on the nose when I put it up as podcast episodes, hence Limnophobia, the irrational fear of lakes. And if there's one like to be afraid of, it's definitely Lake Holly. Is that what that means? Okay. I yeah. meant to, I, I should have asked that. Yeah, it's the rational. It's it's either the it depends on the kind of the definition you go with because there's two definitions for it. Again, I love about that. It's a perfect name for this type of thing. It's either the irrational fear of lakes or just the straight fear of lakes. And not to be confused with limnophobia, which is the um, no, I'm gonna find this uh, fear of oceans, which is a whole other thing. Which I initially thought about calling this like they're, uh, naming this one was especially tough, just because it was like, how much do you want to give away with it? Like initially, I was gonna call it like 
I played with like Lakeside Festival at one point. That kind of sounded like it was the town of Lakeside, which is at that point also an American Gods reference. And I didn't want to go to that down that path by accident. Like, oh, we were fetching a car in the middle of the lake with a person in now. That's not what this arc is about. This is about the Yellow King just messing with JSL. And not even messing, just kind of being like, I made this museum for you because I was expecting you. Do you enjoy your exhibits? <laughs> I put so much time and effort and money into them. Aren't they nice? <laughs> yeah, and I I guess that's kind of like the that's the one thing to keep in mind when talking about a bunch of this. Like Felder, undeniably evil, TDC undeniably evil, Marlene kind of evil, but also just sick of being stuck in a uh, septic tank. Charles Xanthus, Carcosa, the museum. Not evil by human standards, just kind of so removed from human constructs of morality or good, evil, and like what is or isn't okay to do or like what isn't isn't a god at that point that just kind of it does what it does. I, again, yeah, like it's. I chose to make the King Yellow a tad more human in the form of Charles Xanthus, but I think by the end we got back down to the whole idea that the King in Yellow just kind of is. Like it, it does what it does, which is kind of whatever the hell it feels like at the end of the day. It's kind of it. It's all about madness, decay, and entropy, kind of thing. The inevitability of everything that will ever happen, won't ever happen, kind of thing. It's, yeah. It will go mad contemplating things. And it's all about, yeah, part of the themes of the Haster mythos is that it is artists and stuff like that, so why not have a roving man that kind of brings culture to dying towns as a way to trick them to becoming part of Kirkus? I'm not even tricking this. I'm sure, like, I, I have no written words for this, but I'm sure, like, that legally... Charles Xanthus goes through the process of owning the town of Car- owning the town of Brookfield. Technically, I'm sure he has the paperwork somewhere that says, "Oh, by the way, I own the land of Brookfield now." Before it disappears into Carcosa. Yeah, I, I'm the way I kind of imagine Charles going about doing that stuff is that he is completely upfront about that. Like again, like if you'd asked him, "Are you the King in Yellow?" He'd been like, "I sure am." Are you evil? I am not evil by your human standards, but by your standards, yes. Yeah, it's and 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 part of why Nyarlathotep is in there is because Nyarlathotep, yeah, I, he uh, so because Haster at the end of the day is kind of working to undo all of the other gods' things. Him and Nylar butt heads with some frequency, like I. I threw him in there. It's kind of like he's been this kind of ambiguous thing. He's shown up technically twice. He was um he was in TDC and he was definitely in New Thule. And then he's there being like, you guys need to leave right now. I'm rooting for you, but you are screwed. Yeah, just oh, that's of, right. Yeah. Because he even said at the end of the session, like, yeah, we're not going to see him again. That was Narlath Otep. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's... He is the most human of gods, and I could, and again, like, he is there because, like, maybe even Danthos doesn't even know that room is in the museum. Like, I'm sure he knows that the uh, Felder exhibit is there, but the Nyarlathotep uh, annex might not be a thing he knows is even there, and it's him being like, hi, J-Cell, knew you were coming, um, run. <laughs> but if we, no, just run. Running is your only option right now. You can't fight a museum. <laughs> yeah, I've 
I like the museum a lot. It's one of my kind of favorite weirdnesses I've come up with for Delta Queen in a long time. Again, because it, it it just shows you kind of how cosmically unbalanced the world of that game is. Because like, not only is this a, is the kind of big bad of this final arc aware you're there, he's built you exhibits. Like that's the ultimate power move of something beyond human kind of comprehension. Where it's like, oh, I made you an exhibit in my museum. Did you know we were coming? No. Yes. Does it matter? Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that is a great. That was a great touch. Yeah, I believe. Like after we were fleeing, while we were fleeing there, uh, Jackal had a line that was something like, "Oh, do you think we're in danger?" It's like, yeah, <laughs> they made this flipping museum exhibits about us. Like, yes, we are found out. <laughs> like, so. Yeah, and I guess I kind of take it back to the mythos angle of it. Like, there's a very real chance that, like, yes, Charles Xanthus definitely knew that you were maybe not Delta Green agents, but like you were obviously there to try and stop him. But also, like, because he is who he is, he's probably like, oh, they're here finally, and they're gonna try and stop me. Oh, good on them. Won't this be fun? Yeah, it's and that's making him again far more human than he probably is in concept. Like I, I'm not even sure the real King in Yellow is supposed to even be able to talk. He just kind of exists and is dressed in yellow robes. Like again, like the imagery I threw at the end, where just he's a, of a kind of indeterminate shape shifting size of robes and this kind of horrible theater plaster mask thing. The, the more traditional description of the King in Yellow is this humanoid figure in a robe of various kind of yellow colors that may or may not actually be his skin and something called the pallid mask which is again just this kind of mask and what's below the mask is horrifying don't want to take it off that's why I kept dropping little hints about like yeah you keep seeing like his face is like a mask for a quick second there but it's back to being his face if you take it off do you die or go crazy or what's the thing? Uh, it's so I guess kind of like a mechanic we were playing around with, which is why we stopped actually caring about when you guys kept busting for your sanity levels as part of uh, um, the kind of final arc, was the fact that when you're in the night floors, your character can't go crazy. When you're in the night realm, your character, right, when you emerge, all that sanity loss catches up with you in a big way, but you're not capable of, while you're there, experiencing kind of disorders, temporary insanity, major insanity draw. Like it's it's not you're still losing it, but because of the nature of where you are, there's no such thing as sanity. It's all subjective. Like again, it goes back to this whole idea that Carcosa and its existence is in fact the only sane place in all of existence. Like the only reason you go insane in reality is because it's not real. You're realizing it's not real. In Carcosa, you're just all. Yeah, I think even in the recordings, I flat out say at one point, it doesn't matter at this point. Like, we'll handle your insanity losses later, kind of thing. Like, it's like, just keep track of them. Like, if you dip below a certain point, you're here forever, kind of thing, which is why uh, uh, our dear friend Charles took uh, Jumper into the museum at the end of it, kind of thing, because she was zero. It's like, oh, you're, you're coming with me now. You, you belong. In, you, you're welcome to Carcosa. We've prepared a spot for you. It's a lovely space by the lake. We've been expecting you. Please come with us. And uh, kind of an unfortunate twist, uh, Jumper's whole mother having dementia thing, that's another thing that's commonly associated with King and Yellow Mythos, is 
the people that are most aware of it are indeed kind of by modern medical standards insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure. I was trying to remember what happened to Jumper because I remember Jack was the only one left in the car. Yeah. Jet lag went in after me. Yep. So yeah, I you got stuck. Jet lag uh, went back in, and Jumper kind of got carried in by uh, Charles Zampus after he turned fully into the King in Yellow because yeah, she at that point, like any sanity check she was taking, she was going to lose. She was going to fail, and the cost was huge. Like it was the. The final check was a big one, and I think Jackal like barely passed it. And I was kind of wondering how Jackal managed to do that well for that long. Dude had an insanely high power score. It's not a bad strategy for Delta Green. Mm. Keeps the sane a little bit longer. Because as you point out at one point, it keeps going down as the sandy goes down. Right. It gets harder. Yep. Um, which makes sense. I mean, that's a yeah. cool mechanic. And that's the same mechanic as you find in Call of Cthulhu, right? Yeah, yeah it's... um. The dice rolling system's a little bit different. Uh, Delta Green's a little bit more kind of absolute and pass and failure. Cthulhu has kind of this hard pass, hard fail system where and it's it's why I actually like the Delta Green approach more than the Cthulhu one where you have your kind of skill level and then you have kind of a matrix of degraded levels of that skill level where it's like, yeah, if you hit this, you succeed, but if you hit this, you super succeed, but if you hit this, you just super succeed. And it's not it, for what that game is. It's a cool system, I guess. But I think in Delta Green's more action-oriented madness, it would feel a tad out of place. Yeah, no. Uh, I do have to say, um, when you first insisted that we play Delta Green, I trusted you on it, but I, I had no real interest in it just because it was a like. Well, why aren't we? Just playing Cthulhu. Like, yeah. What's what's the difference here? And then you delve in, and immediately it's like, oh, they've done a lot of interesting work yeah. here to make this very specific setting. But all, like, you have a lot of options that they just don't have. They wouldn't have the ability to delineate in Cthulhu. Yeah, it, it, in as a way much that it makes is, sense. As much as it is very deliberately the sequel to Call of Cthulhu, it is truly its own game. Like the whole kind of federal government aspects to the game. I think like. The simple fact that the classes are your job, I think, and like the, the whole job system, I think, in that game is fascinating unto itself because you get to learn terrifying things about reality and the fact that like the IRS, the Coast Guard, the U.S. Marshals, and the Forestry Service are terrifying. Mm-hmm. They don't seem it, but their scope of power is. Yeah, it's... I think the game, like, it's... I'm always kind of a mindset where I kind of like... I, I'm never going to knock different kind of variations or takes on an RPG or settings specifically to exist, but I always like those games to justify why they exist. And like I said at the top of this, I think I like Call of Cthulhu as a tabletop RPG. I don't like playing it that much. I like kind of the stuff that comes along with it, but I love playing Delta Green just because, and I think I explained this to you guys when we first started playing a while back, or at the start of all that madness, was the whole idea that it's one of the few RPGs it has a reason as to why people are in theory talking to you. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's one of the few RPGs that actually kind of solves the question of why the hell is this random person coming up to me and why am I answering their questions? <laughs> because they're federal agents and they're doing an investigation. Yeah, I mean, when you take that kind of weird mindset to other RPGs, you're like, why is this baker talking to us and not being like, get the hell out of my store? 
I'm trying to sell this bread. Friend <laughs> Delta Green, it's like, what do you mean I was running anthrax lace meth out of my bakery? We can look the other way if you tell us what happened in town. Uh, okay. <laughs> Seems like a gross abuse of federal powers, but uh, if you say so. Mm. Yeah, I, I think we've probably exhausted what I had planned to talk about mm. through all of this. We've definitely hit all of kind of my mythos stuff worth talking about this. Uh, for those curious, the lighter was indeed just a really cool lighter at the end of the day. Uh, green boxes are full of just weird stuff. And the idea of a lighter that just is unbelievably cool, the more people fight over it, I couldn't, I, I just thought it was a fun idea to throw at them. Like, okay, green boxes are just nutsy. Oh, uh, you want, uh, you want to know what Dragon Blue did? Yes, that was specifically one of the things I meant to ask about. Yeah. So there is a great Delta Green resource called Greenbox Generator. And uh, I, among thousands of people at this point, have gone through the effort of coming up with weird stuff that you can put in a green box. And well, I kind of hand make most of my green boxes myself because I like them to kind of have some connection to the story or something that may or may not be useful. I do occasionally dip into that stuff for some of the weirdness of it. And Dragon Blute is a, it's it's a reference. I think it's a pretty obvious one. It's a reference to a um, I think it's um tear story of some kind where if you had drank the Dragon Blute you'd have caught on fire and died instantly. If you had poured the dragon flute on any part of your body, whatever part you poured on would become indestructible. Like you, put, you could have put it on your head and it would have stained it, but you'd have now had a bulletproof or anything through your head. And if you kind of like swished around your mouth or put your tongue in it, you'd know to talk to birds. And this is, I'm sorry, this is something you got from the... Yeah, green box uh, generator. It's a, um, that's also a thing from the folklore's referencing the whole pure story. He does that. He talks to birds and shit. All right. Yeah. But uh, you, you told us about the tennis racket would have been something we could attack yeah, with. The, the tennis racket was the, my, it ironically, is the most powerful weapon I've ever put into a Delta Green game. Uh, it was a, I think I said it was a 3D10 on attack or something like that. So it had the risk of every time you used it, you had to pass a strength roll. If you critically failed the strength roll, the arm you were playing with it with would explode. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, balancing it out at that point. But yeah, if anything you kind of like hit with it, like a rock or a ball or something, was going to hit targets for three d ten damage. I, no one uses it, so it didn't matter, kind of thing. Like, yeah, like it's it's a broken weapon with a potentially very high cost to it. Like, not a failure, but a critical failure, a critical fumble. I mean, would have led to some unintentional hilarity of like, and I had a whole backstory for it too, where just the, the tennis racket was owned by a man with a killer serve, and when you were kind of channeling through all of that, was indeed his killer serve, but also he suffered a catastrophic branding serve at one point that, like, destroyed his arm, and now, if you messed up with that thing, or kind of were deemed unworthy by it, it destroyed your arm, like it destroyed his. Yeah, no, I... The guns were cool. The fact you managed to kill something, the fact we got a critical uh, what's that, a lethality roll at all in JSL files, like those are incredibly rare in the grand scheme of things. In fact, we got a couple of those. I thought was unbelievably awesome to have happen. And those were when exactly? Uh, we had you got one on you got a couple on Felder. I think which was pretty crazy to have happen. You got one mm. on um, at the very end of fighting the Deep One in uh, Deep South. 
Okay. Which was just a cool way to end a fight. It's like, oh okay, shit, you kill the demon with the lethality shot, badass. And in that case, it's still like that was the cool one of like it had immunity to kind of that stuff going on just to kind of make the fight a little bit harder. You're still just obliterated with your giant damage roll on that. And I'm like, okay, badass, that's awesome. Was that me? No, was that was shotgun? Jackal, I think. Okay. Yeah, because shotguns don't have lethality. It's only the machine guns or like assault weaponry that does. The trade-off is shotguns do massive amounts of damage. I got a good shot in with my shotgun. Oh yeah, no, like, yeah, it's, it's um, you can technically do more damage with a shotgun than you can like with a max lethality damage from an assault rifle. It's just you, in some cases, have the chance to just obliterate something instantly, regardless of damage, with a lethality roll. Which again, is something I like in that game a lot. Yeah, because you said you said we got lucky a number of times now. I mean, there were there were a couple of times that I felt like we probably should have died, and I don't know if you're keeping us alive. But for instance, no, when I was I, seized I, I, by a golem. I was prepared to murder the hell out of you in every single combat. I, I guess we're kind of breaking my rule completely at this point. But yeah, no, I have Felder had an ability that if he had got, if I could get it to land. So and again, like in the interest of kind of keeping things just not complete bullshit, Felder had a thing where he grab you. And if you didn't break three by the next turn, he would basically kind of like pour his sandy essence down your throat and explode you from the inside out. And it was an instant kill. Like it's, once he did that, there was nothing you could do about it. And every single time I attempted to get him to pull that move off, I would always fail. And I'm like, and it, I gave myself something. I think I had a 40% lethality on that. I never rolled like less than like a 70 when trying to get that thing to happen. Like I can't be an instantaneously guaranteed hit. If I get this to go, that that's be unfair. And I'm like, I want to do this once. It would be so cool to do it once. It's like, oh shit, this is how dangerous Felder is. And like, again, you're fighting a dude made of sand. He's not constrained by human concepts of fighting. He can just pour mm. himself down your throat and blow blow yourself up from the inside out, kind of thing. And for the life of me, I could not get it to go. And you guys were just like hitting him for massive damage. Again, like. The guy has technically infinite health. He just has to reform after a amount of time. But you guys were hitting for just huge chunks of damage. He has no armor because he's sand. Like, he wouldn't bother putting on armor. Good point. Yeah, like, it, like it's to the point where if you asked me the question of was the clothing Felder Golem was wearing sand, I'd be like, yeah, I think it was, actually. Like, his entire being except the gun and the sword probably sand. It was just kind of him shaping sand into a reflection of what he thinks he looks like. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, because when he had me, I was pretty sure I was done. I thought you were too. I really did. <laughs> and I had like my second character, you know, in the back of my mind and everything. But I'm glad that. Oh yeah, you know, I can point to a couple points in time where I was convinced we were about to have a player kill. Um, when Barnabas shot out of the water and again missed the lethality roll, like still hit jumper for some damage, but I was convinced he was about to just get shredded at that point in time. Again, kind of high lethality rating on that attack I gave him, because he has like a uh, dive bomb attack, essentially, kind of for that exact moment, kind of thing. Didn't get that to land, and couldn't get to land again. Thought Felder would get one of those things off, and then there wasn't anything to actually fight in uh, in the phobia at that point. It was just kind of the crazy ride of Welcome to Carcosa, and it's like, yeah, no, I guess we're just doing... I didn't expect for any of you to be here. I was expecting to be like, oh, and here's the jumper exhibit for your comrade. That's dead. Well, it didn't work. Yeah, I 
I had a whole thing prepared for each one of your characters to be dead at that point. I'm like, I don't need any of these. Cool. I thought there'd be way more of you, Sam, exhibits. Uh, yeah, no, it's as much as I talk up um, kind of uh, Delta Green's lethality ratings, it's more that there's the chance to die around every corner. And admittedly, like, yeah, by the end of the game, three of you went completely insane kind of thing. Like, it's you got hit pretty hard. You did get kind of one insta-kill. Like, again, like the lover in the ice I mentioned, there's an artifact in a green box in that thing that is capable of insta-killing a character. Like, it's just, it can straight up murder you. The same way the dragon blood could, if you drank it, you would have died because you got engulfed in flames because you drank dragon blood. You idiot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that kind of stuff, which is, it's, it's more of a mindset of, I guess, in kind of your more traditional RPGs, the whole idea of, hey, here's a thing that if you consumed, it would kill you instantly. You didn't warn me. Why are you drinking a mysterious liquid in a green box? That's on you. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't something I could have justified from an RP standpoint, yeah. so I didn't. Yeah. But then you drank special rations. They were harmless. It's <laughs> the best goddamn thing you've ever had. Special rations. I did enjoy it. That was good yeah, I, I, the green boxes, I think, are they're a fun kind of way of just both messing with players and also just kind of throwing in some fun, just I can't make a campaign out of this or a kind of a scenario out of this, but like, here's a weird idea I had. Like, I've played some games where like green boxes, like you open up the green box, it's just full of jack-in-the-boxes and you're like, nope, not going in there. (laughs) But there's guns in there. I'm not going into a green box full of (laughs) jack-in-the-boxes. Why? Just no. I don't care if they're all completely harmless. It's still full of jack in the boxes, and that's right. a nightmare waiting to happen. Yeah, like I, 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 I there's examples of green boxes where it's like you walk in and there's a person like nailed to the wall, and they're like, "Hi, how's it going? You want to come down? No, I'm good up here. Uh, you in pain? Immense amounts of pain. How long have you been here? What year is it? Oh, I've been here thirty years. Cool, cool. You don't want to come down? No, bad things happen when I come down. Yeah, it's. I, I never got too weird with them. Look forward to that in the future as I get weirder with them as we move through negative modifier. But yeah, for you, I kind of kept it grounded in like let's not go f- completely weird. Like the the bitch in Camara was about as far as I'm like okay, let's have some fun with the junkyard Jack green box kind of thing. But like let's not go too weird with it. That was fun. One might say it's bitching. Yeah, I think we've more or less covered all of everything that's worth talking about at this point without kind of dissecting our entire ride through JSA, which is what we're not here to talk about. We're just here to talk about lore and the various kind of weird breadcrumbs. I, I guess kind of now that you've been through a, uh, a whole a whole campaign of uh, Delta Green, uh, you've come out at Webford was a veteran player at this point. Um, obviously, I'm not going to tell people these things. It's really fun as a handler to watch people just kind of grasp adult minutes are going through it, I guess like from a kind of like just the game itself, what is your biggest takeaway having played through just kind of a variety of different settings for it kind of thing. Like I, I, I tried to do a variety of different missions of sorts to go through with the with the man you had your kind of official bug hunt, which was the Felder thing you had last things last, the quintessential first Delta Green thing. And you had a okay, these guys are obviously lying to us, but they're too stupid to pull it off. And then you had 
What's my biggest takeaway? Yeah, you you played some other games, I guess. Like, what makes Delta Green Delta Green? I guess in your book, and maybe it's not, and maybe it's just it's more streamlined Cthulhu. Well, again, I don't have a comparison for Cthulhu, a good comparison for Cthulhu because I've never sure. played it. Um, if you want to run at any point, I'd be more than happy to play it, or find somebody else to run it. Um, my biggest, my okay, so my my first take, my my first takeaway was that there's a lot to this game and there's a reason that it's so specific and that's because there's there there was a lot to delve into there's a lot of character options that i thought were very interesting things that wouldn't have occurred to me um which again when i started it's like well why have this game when we have call of Cthulhu? it's because we can go into a much more detailed realm with this game i mean it started as kind of an expansion to Cthulhu, so that makes sense but um Another big thing that occurred to me, though, it's, I don't, I, I haven't ventured out of D20 as much as I would have liked, as much as I would have liked, and how similar it was to, how, how familiar certain things were, the skills lists and things like that. Obviously, it's not the same skills that you find in D&D, but that was something that really spoke to me was, you know, this isn't like a different language. It's just a different die mechanic. Yeah. And this makes a lot of sense. It's one that makes a lot of sense. Um, the abilities are mostly the same and there's some interesting things, you know, the sanity mechanic, which we talked about a lot makes sense that it, that all adds up for me. Um, I think it has a lot of potential and I think just giving you a more structured I don't know what I would do for a Call of Cthulhu campaign. I've never played one. I I don't know what sort of topic I would I would write, but having the sort of grounding aspect of all of the characters are in some way related to the or most of the characters are in some way related to the federal government and these are sort of government operations, that leads to some ideas. That leads much faster than just the the openness of Cthulhu. Yeah. Um so I, it's a really cool game. I see why you love this game. I see why a lot of people love this game. There's a lot of buzz about it. Um, it's got a lot of cool stuff going for it. You mentioned it keeps coming up as you interview people. Like it seems to be a game that game designers seem to be aware of. Oh yes, very much so. And a lot of, uh, a lot of people have asked me to reach out to Tynes. I believe is the name of the designer for Delta Green, which inevitably I would love to do. So I'd love to talk to him at some point. Um, but yeah, it's a game that a lot of people are are familiar with, and some I'll just say some high profile designers have said very nice things about it. If anyone's interested in picking it up, it's other than the fact that you know it's, um, well, I was just gonna say it's not like a dungeon crawl. That's the biggest thing I think from getting out of D and D. But now, now I'm going back to I'm dialed back too far. Um, it's it hard totally to come up with dungeon crawl. You could, you could make it a dungeon crawl, but I don't, well, I guess you could do, I mean, you could do a lot of, actually, yeah, you could do a lot of cool things. This government facility is infested with, you know, they broke something and now this unit has to go in and clean the place out. No, yeah, I didn't play around with it much, but a bunch of the community likes pulling stuff from the SCP Foundation, which has a very kind of strike force feel to how they handle stuff. Yeah, I, I, there was actually a, it didn't happen to you, but if you hadn't burned the stuff in Felder's Zoo, it was going to escape and come up behind you, and then it would have become a dungeon crawl. 
Okay. Well, that's yeah. good to know, I guess. Yeah. It, um, uh, the, the, we could have had a dungeon crawl on our hands. It would have been a long one, too. Okay. Well, yeah, so we... Um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'd love to play it again. I'd love to revisit, you know, if you want to do... Um, any sort of, I, I know that you have another group now that you're running and I'll, I'll tune in for that. Um, but if you ever feel so inclined to figure out what happened to Jackal, I know I'm probably not getting Yoten back and that's just a, that just happens. You know, that's a casualty. I didn't plan on playing him for the rest of my life, but if we ever want to revisit that, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to. Uh, well, so it'd be a lot of fun. We can be kind of our fun transition and closing this out spot. So our, our season two of Delta Green is going to focus on F-Cell, or at least a chunk of F-Cell, that if you are an eagle-eared listener of uh, our first season of Delta Green, you've already met, technically. Uh, we are we're going to be kind of meeting some of the agents from uh, that helped uh, J-Cell burn down Felder's lab. That would be Pine and whatnot? Uh, well, no, that would be uh, Fiddlesticks, but uh, Fiddlesticks is... Oh, sorry, actually... sorry, sorry. F, sorry. I yeah, misspoke. F-Cell. I meant to say I was thinking Fiddlesticks, uh, who showed up with... Um, yep. Yeah, she showed. Did we ever figure out if she was there as condoned by Pine. We decided she wasn't. Uh, we will confirm that next season, actually. Okay. Yeah. Next season, Pine is back. Uh, Pine is now running F Cell, and F Cell is now our main cell. Uh, got some stuff planned for you. It's it's a different season. Uh, we've got different kind of backbones uh, to it, kind of thing. It's I'm playing with more veteran players of Delta Green, so I get to pull more shenanigans on them. Uh, Expect more stuff kind of at the level of weirdness that uh, our final arc was from the jump. It's kind of cruel to spring. Well, welcome to Carcosa right off the bat on Delta Green. Players have never played the game before where it's like, okay, we're in, an, we're in a museum that's shape-bending. That's great. How do we get out? You don't. You have to imagine your way out. We would never ever have guessed that because we're used to playing not Delta Green. Yeah, no. We hit the ground running with some weirdness. Well, it sounds fun. Yeah. Hopefully people enjoy it. It's a slightly different crew, but still more Delta Green. More Delta Green is inherently a good thing. Uh, yeah, there's no good way of ending these, I guess. I hope you've learned some stuff about Delta Green, learned some stuff about the Cthulhu mythos yourself. Uh, again, if you have follow-up questions about JCell, you can reach out to us on Twitter or email. It's down in the show notes for both of those things. I'm very active on both. We like hearing from people. But yeah, no, uh, this has been our first kind of lore along, lore deep dive of a Delta Green campaign. Look forward to one of these every time we do something or a campaign worth kind of deep diving on. But yeah, hopefully you enjoyed. Hope you enjoy next season. Later. Mm-hmm.